Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Mobile Shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well. I'm super excited because this issue features one of the Aquaman family. Very, very, very excited when that happens. That is true. It is absolutely true. It's a big one. <laughs> Hot dog. I'm excited. I, it's funny. It's like you know, I go in waves like uh, of, of who's who. Like, you know, I never dread doing these. I love them. But like sometimes I just get so excited and I'm like really jazzed about this episode. Even though like this issues, there's not a lot of like explosive you know, firework entries, but it's still, it's just a fun, solid read, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Totally looking forward to it. Well, folks, um, first thing we want to do uh, here on the Who's Who podcast is we want to give thanks to our sponsors. If uh, if you're not familiar, one of the sponsors of the Fire and Water podcast and uh, the Who's Who podcast is In Stock Trades. In Stock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, I picked out a couple of entries that are related to this particular issue, and I want to talk about, uh, if you don't know, this is going to be uh, an all-M issue of Who's Who. In fact, your cover feature, probably character, and we can debate this later, but is Mr. Miracle. So I checked out on In Stock Trades, they have Jack Kirby's Fourth World Omnibuses, uh, or Omnibuys? What is that? Plur- What's plural for that? Hey, um, yeah. Which one? Gander, I think, is what it is. It's a gander of omnibuses? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, they've got all four omnibuses in uh, in soft cover, and they normally retail. Uh, they they kind of range in price a little bit. The first one normally retails for forty dollars. Okay, forty dollars. It's three hundred and four pages. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's got a. It's it show. It's it's doing the fourth world stuff sort of in order. So in here, you get some of the Superman Jimmy Olsen's pal. You get. Uh, I'm sorry. Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. You get Forever People, New Gods, and Mr. Miracle. You get, like, the first three issues of all of those. And it's by Jack Kirby. You know, it's great stuff. Written by him. Very dynamic. Anyway, uh, normally goes for $39.99. 45% off gets it at $21.99. Anyway, and the same kind of pattern continues. You know, you get into the Volume 2, and you get issues 4 through 6 of all those books. You get into Volume 3. You get issues 7 through 9 of all those books. Then you get to Volume 4. And um, bam, you get actually eight issues of Mr. Miracle. So uh, between these four, you get all 18 issues of Mr. Miracle. You get some really great, the New God series, which is so good. Can't recommend it enough. Those other volumes, by the way, they're, they're a little uh, less pricey. They're $29.99 retail, and they go for $16.49 at 45% off. So, I mean, all told, I mean, you're going to spend, I don't know, uh, just over 50 bucks, I think, here for all four volumes. You're going to get free shipping. Because you've spent fifty bucks, it's a heck of a deal, guys. And you're talking about what is this? Twelve hundred pages of Jack Kirby Fourth World awesomeness. <laughs> so check it out. What, what you got, buddy? 
Uh, yeah, my book is, uh, I guess, only t- not even really connected to Huzu other than a Carmen Infantino sort of tangential connection. But uh, this is a uh, classic hashtag finding your joy pick, which is Star Wars Omnibus, a long time yeah. ago, volume one, which reprints the Marvel Star Wars series. And of all the Marvel comics, their Star Wars series was my all-time favorite book that they published. It was my, f- like, my second uh, like second favorite book to buy after Justice League every month. So I, I bought every issue of the series. I just worship that comic. I mean, I love the movies, and the, the comic was the perfect you know filler in those long, long years in between sequels. So uh, <laughs> you can get Volume 1 features, of course. I don't know how many of the first issues it, it features, because uh, Inside Crates doesn't mention it here. But it does feature, uh, I think, like the first 10 or 15 or something like that. And the first six are, of course, the, the, are the movie adaptation by Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin. Uh, future volumes are going to include rare material like the droids and the Ewok stuff, the adaptation of Return of the Jedi, Star Wars Marvel UK. I recommend the entire series because it's just – the Star Wars series was so much fun. But anyway, the first volume, Star Wars Omnibus, long time ago, volume one. 480 pages <laughs> <laughs> retails retails for 24.99 in stock trades price $13.74 <sighs> 45% off ton ton of fun can't go wrong with uh, Star Wars Omnibus I we need to have like a long talk about that series at some point because I'm a huge fan guys in fact many of you probably already know this but I'm just going to say it for those of you who don't there's a great podcast that goes through the Star Wars Marvel comic issue by issue. It's in the Two True Freaks Network. It's called Star Wars Monthly Monday. I've actually been a guest star in several episodes. Um, don't let that deter you. It's still good anyway. But it's a fun comic. Oh, my gosh. I have so much love for this guy. In fact, it's the very first comic I collected on a regular basis because I didn't really consider that a superhero comic. So I didn't consider that collecting comics You know, as a kid. I, was just, I bought every issue, though. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so good. Yeah, anyway, great book, great book. We'll, we'll save that for another day. We'll do a Geek Talk episode and talk about that. Anyway, uh, so, folks, as you heard from Rob, uh, 45% off of those beauties. Again, um, and there's multiple volumes of that, so you can get a bunch of those. And, again, you'll hit that $50 threshold and get free shipping. So go out to InStockTrades.com. Go to their Contact Us page, if you would, when you do it. Shoot them a little quick message saying, hey, I found you guys thanks to the Who's Who podcast or the Fire and Water podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we are going to talk today about Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe Volume XV. For you Roman numeral, numeral, it should be easier for me to say on the 15th episode. For you Roman numerally challenged folks, that's Volume 15. Cover dated as March, I'm sorry, May 1986. Actually hit the stands. Th- thank you, uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, for having this information. Hit the stands on February 20th. 1986. What were you doing on February 20th, 1986? Boy, uh, what was I? High school? I guess I was in high school. Yeah, I guess so. I was probably, uh, well, I was buying comics from Westfield, that subscription service. So I was probably just waiting to get through my classes so I could run home and get my comics. Those were waiting for me in the mail. That was probably what I was doing. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, folks, just real quick, um, I know I do it every issue, but uh, every episode, but I think it's important. Just to recap who's who, it is a 26-issue series. You know, I thought about that the other day. 26 issues, 26 letters in the alphabet. Coincidence? <laughs> I, th- I think not. Anyway, uh, it celebrated the 50th anniversary, and at this point, celebrating the 51st anniversary, because it's 1986. It ran parallel to Crisis originally. Anyway, um, alphabetical listing, and it's got no ads. It's 32 pages, $1.00. 
And uh, the, our goal here as we go through this, folks, is that hopefully you shouldn't have to have the comic in front of you. We're going to describe these to the best of our abilities. However, we will put some of our entries up on our Tumblr site. We'll put probably, I don't know, anywhere between 10 and 15 entries up on the Tumblr site. So you can go out there and reference those as well. Rob, what's that Tumblr site? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. Awesome. And each one of these entries, so just so you know, I mean, it's got a, a big, bold drawing of the character in the foreground in color. And in the background is a single color. And it's what it's called the serpent. And back there, you've got usually you see the character using their powers of some sort, maybe a little bit of their history. And if they wear a mask, you see them without their mask. And then there's a series of uh, just text pieces, which gives you their alter egos, their occupations, marital statuses, all that stuff, first appearances, hair, eyes, all that big chunk of history, powers and weapons. It gives you a real sense of the character. And of course, the borders around the pages are these really cool yellow dots which are supposed to represent the uh, printing process, which um, drove DC staffers insane with the bright yellow colors. <laughs> but anyway, um, you can find uh, back issues of our podcast out on iTunes. You can also find it on Stitcher. And if you're going to chat about the issue as we go through this on the social medias, please use the hashtag of PoundFWPodcast. That's PoundFWPodcast. It will help your fellow who's who hike. find <laughs> What? I said, hut, hut, hike. <laughs> I don't even know what you mean with that. Football reference. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Our hashtag, very similar to another show's hashtag. Oh, yeah, only you and I get that joke. Yeah, I know. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, if both Google Plus and Facebook are taking hashtags nowadays, so, hey, please use them. All right. So, uh, Rob? Yes, uh, after that. Your, your issue, my friend. intro. Okay, yes. Uh, volume 15, wraparound cover by George Perez and Dick Giordano. Uh, this is normally the point where Shag complains that Dick Giordano's back character inking is, quote, a little sloppy. Uh, so we can just we can just all pretend that he said it and move on. Uh, the main character... Look, at, look, yes. look at Merlin. Hmm? Look at Merlin. Where, where's Merlin? Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Hard to tell it's him, isn't it? He's in the back. It's okay. kind of sloppy. Yeah, all right, all right. Speak ill of the dead like that. Anyway, the main character is ostensibly Mr. Miracle. I would argue that's relatively fair. Metamorpho might have the edge. Um, speaking as, of course, as the Aquaman fan, I would have preferred it to be Mira. Uh, that's probably, at this point in, in Aquaman's history, that was not going to be appropriate. Mira just was at a real low ebb. Aquaman was at a really low ebb. Now, wouldn't she uh, insane by this point? No, the, no, no, that hadn't happened yet. Um, this okay. was this was right. This was just as the the, the miniseries, the Craig Hamilton miniseries, was Neil Posner Craig, Craig Hamilton miniseries was happening. But she was a very minor character. Oh. She had very few appearances. This, this was after that. I'm sorry. This was after that. No, no. Issue four uh, is on the back cover. Okay, so it was right. All right, so it was all right. Very similar. Uh, but, I mean, she had had very few appearances in the 80s. She was in action comics in the backup strip, but she was really a relatively minor character. Of course, if they had done this nowadays, she would be the main character, thanks to Jeff Johns and uh, the, everyone else. But, uh, but you know, so I'm disappointed that she, she didn't get the main spot, but I can't be that – I can't be that uh, – I don't know. can't be that upset about it because it would really be fair. That said right, – well, I'm going to say a couple quick things as you just uh, – just as comments on that. Uh, I like they drew her kind of hippie. I like that. She's a full-figured, beautiful woman there. Now, um, interesting, but you mentioned Mr. Miracle has the cover spot. It's, it's, it's interesting because he wasn't in anything at this point. So you got to wonder, if he's not making DC any money, why has he got the cover spot? I would assume it's because of the toy. Was the toy out at this point? 
Uh, yeah, the super, I think the I think the third wave had ended by then. But I mean, he was the only. I mean, you look at these characters; he's the only one with a toy. Right, but you have two co- two characters on the cover that actually starred in books. You got Metamorpho, who actually starred in two comic books at this point. Batman and the Outsiders, or Tales of the Outsiders, you know, the reprint Yeah, book. Adventures of the Outsiders. Yeah, Adventures of the Outsiders and the Outsiders. So he actually was selling two comics at this point. And then you got Amazing Man, who was the headliner of his own book. Not yeah, that it was a big seller. But, yeah, I, I, but, I'm, I would say a toy a tr- a trumps any character appearances. I'm, You know, to be honest, I'm a little, I think it's only because he's a villain that it isn't Mr. Freeze. I was going to say Mr. Freeze and Mr. Miracle both should have been on the cover then at this point. Yeah, yeah, so... But yeah, so Mr. Miracle gets an eye. It's perfectly fine. It's a, I mean, it's it's a wonderful drawing. I think Perez and Giordano were a great combo. As you said, I think Mira looks great. She's shooting out of the, the floor of the cover, sort of looking uh, resplendent in, in her water sort of tower there. Looks great. All the other – everybody is facing off with one another. You've got uh, – what's that, what's that Firestorm villain? Mindbender? Mindboggler. Mindboggler. Facing off against Mento. Uh, you see the two Mr. Mixes Pitalix floating around. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Matter Master is seemingly zapping himself in the face with his wand. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I like that uh, Matter Eater Lad is, of course, taking a giant chunk out of the scenery. So Now, take a look at that. If you follow that scenery around, I think that's Metamorpho. Yeah, he's taking a chunk out of Metamorpho, who is partly turned into from a solid to a gas back to a solid. Well, he goes bottom. solid to a liquid to a gas. Okay, that's right. Yeah, he's a liquid down at the bottom. Yeah, he's so. doing the whole the whole shebang. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a matter reader. Lad's a weird character. Um, <laughs> you see, you see, Mister Mind sitting on the the actual on uh, the upper right of the cover. Oh, he's actually yeah. sitting on the box, which I think he's is, sitting on the logo. He's How sitting cool. on the logo is one of the few characters I think to actually interact with the logo, sort of. And then the bottom left, you've got an opposite thing. You've got the uh, what's what's the, what's that guy's name? The, Which uh, guy? The guy uh, on the bottom left, Mister Mr. Element. Mister Element. He's got his foot on the DC logo. That's so, cool. Uh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, so it's it's a fun. This is it's a great cover. And Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks, is sitting in Metron's lap, which I think is really cute. That that is a hoot, yeah. as an absolute. Hoot. This is one of the more fun covers we've yeah, had in yeah, a while. Yeah. There's a lot going on here. I mean, uh, I like Tin is sort of like protecting his weird girlfriend thing uh, in the bottom left-hand corner there. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got what else do I have here? Um, now, Mindboggler is fighting Mento, as you mentioned, but they should have put Mirage in there too. Another illusion-based character. Mm. That would have been that would have been nice. Anyway, uh, I dig. How, I don't even understand this. Mr. E is knocking Mr. Adam's head off? I mean, is Mr. Adam supposed to be that easy to take apart? Yeah. <laughs> I never got that. That's pretty funny. Did you notice Mr. America has caught his whip on Metron, Metron's chair and he's being dragged behind yes, him? Yes, I did see that. It's very That's nice, lots yeah. of fun. Yeah. And I like how all the suit characters are sort of hanging out together. you got Talkie Tawny hanging out with, um, not the spirit, what's his name, Midnight, Midnight yeah. you know, Will Magnus, Mr. E, they're all hanging together. I think that's kind of cool. You know, as I'm looking at this, I realize I was wrong that there is another character that had a toy. Mr. Max Pitalik had a Mego doll from the 70s. I completely that's, forgot about that. That's true, but yeah. it wasn't something they could sell. They no, were selling. it wasn't a current thing, but but in terms of my statement yeah. that he was the, Mr. Miracle's the only toy, it's not that yeah. true. So. And then... Um, the, I, I like this is weird. I like how Tina uh, is hitting on Metamorpho. I think that's cute. <laughs> like, I don't know. She, I've always thought she's sexy. I know that's probably weird because she's a robot, but she's hot, and I like how she's flirt with Metamorpho. That makes me happy because they're both sort of doing that shape changing thing. 
Yeah, it's cute. It's it's, it's a very charming cover. Absolutely, and M- Amazing Man is having the time of his life using uh, flying on Mr. Miracle's gravity discs. There, I think it's really really sweet. It's great. I I just caught one more thing. Oh my gosh, this is cool. Mercury. Take a look at him in the top left hand corner. All right. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's chastising Matter Eater Lad for eating a chunk of Metamorpho. He's pointing at Metamorpho, going, "What are you doing? You're eating Metamorpho." But it, he's also he he's actually because Mercury is a liquid. His neck is actually drop by splitting like droplets. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, I've it never. Is. Yeah. I don't think I've ever noticed Mercury do that before. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Nice I mean, job, probably, George Perez. <laughs> it probably happens all the time, and I just didn't notice. But anyway, so this. I mean, this this cover's great. I just I'm in love with it. This is another good example of you know an issue that doesn't have a lot. I mean, there is no JLA Silver Age character here. There is no marquee villain here, uh, other than Mister Freeze. But although I don't know, he was really big at this point. Anyway, but it's. Just fun. Yeah, it is. It's a blast. It's a total blast. You know, Mitzi Pedalik should have got the cover. I can't say his name right. I'll just say that up front, folks. He he should have been on there too because it's his Super Friends affiliation. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. Anyway. Anyway, right. on the inside of the the letters page, um, someone makes reference to uh, Dula Dent. Dula Dent's appearance in the Tales of the Teen Titans number fifty, which we talked about in a previous issue. And it is, well, this, this is what he, he asks. He says, I remember a reference to another Harlequin who was a member of the original Teen Titans. This Harlequin was a female version of the Joker and claimed to be the daughter of the Joker. This really had me confused. No need to feel confused. Many readers join you in the confusion surrounding the woman called Dula Dent. She pretended to be the Joker's daughter and later to be, claimed to be Two-Face's daughter, Dula. In Tales of the Teen Titans number 50, Dula shows up at Donatoy's wedding and Dick Grayson accuses her of lying. She admitted to the deception and points to her recent addition of 50 pounds, keeping her out of crime fighting. Since she was never a major character, nor did she ever have her own series or origin, it was decided to omit her reference and she will not be seen again. (laughs) As a kid, that stuff always intrigued me, that there were characters that DC was like permanently consigning to the dustbin of history. And and here they were just saying, no, this character will never come back. Which, of course, as we know, there is no such thing as a character that doesn't come back. Uh, But... You know, for all intents and purposes, they were like, no, she's she's gone forever. I just think there was something fascinating about that. Well, they thought in post-crisis they were going to do stuff like that. They didn't realize how nostalgic yeah, the, the yeah. writers that came in yeah. later would be. <laughs> there will never be guys like Mark Wade and Jeff Johns who come in and undo all this stuff. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, so there's the, you know, the, that person was mentioning that, that, uh, Harley, that Harley Quinn slash Joker's daughter did not get a, a listing. Not, not to uh, pick a scab or anything. But I do have to point out another letter here. Angelo Lebausis, Le I guess that's how you say it. Uh, bullet number two. Could you please note if there are any two or more of the same character as in the case of Aquaman and Batwoman, where they're not two Jokers? They're talking about Earth 1 or 2, the stuff. Right. And this, per- this person's writing in implying there's you know two Aquaman, Earth 1 or 2. And uh, Le- I assume it's Len who responded to the letters. Just completely dodges that yes, entirely. Yes. Yep. Because yep. <laughs> he's already said in a previous letters page there was only one Aquaman. Yes. So well, we all now know. I do love this bit matter. though. Where, what's that? <laughs> no, we all know not, no. it doesn't matter. <laughs> we're not doing that anyway. Uh, I like how they said, "How do you determine the height and weight of each character?" And they talk about how Paul Levitz gave them a list of the Legion characters, complete with hair, eye, and weight ch- a chart for every Legion character when they started. Who's into it, man? He's serious. That's wild. He was to sat down like, "How much does Light Last weigh?" Hmm. When she's using her powers, she weighs this. <laughs> I'm actually at work right now. 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> Someone's paying me to do this. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so great. Uh, and then there's one other letter from writer Michael L. Fleischer pointing out a couple of the inaccuracies. Uh, basically, sort of like it's like a private letter to Bob Greenberg, but then they just printed it, talking about some of the convoluted history of Hex slash Jonah Hex and the crisis and all stuff like that. So uh, I thought this was kind of a fun little thing. It, 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 I get the sense it wasn't necessarily meant to be printed. Because it seems like it's a he talks about a private lunch the two of them had, <laughs> but right, Bob right. Greenberger just went ahead and printed it. So okay, there is, you go. Is he did he write hex or something? Yes, he did. Oh wow, okay, yeah. oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. He, I think he wrote like every hex. Oh wow, <laughs> he wrote like the whole series. So he wrote both series and like every issue of it or something close. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyways, yeah, that's the letters page. There is uh, there's no parentheses, uh, not parentheses, no uh, pronunciation key. This issue, unfortunately. No proofreader either. No proofreader either, but we'll, we'll <laughs> somehow work through it. Uh, anyway, the first page is, thank goodness, another gang-slash-council-related character. <laughs> <laughs> I felt that the, the series lacked a certain amount of Supergirl, lame-ass villain quotient, so thank God we've got that. Matrix Prime, who is the metal guy from the council. So basically what this worked is, okay, you've got the council which is the group of the four candy-colored bad guys, right? And then you've got Matrix Prime, who by himself is Matrix Prime. And when they're together, they're the gang, or they're the council. Wait, yeah, they're the council. So when the four guys are by themselves, they're the gang, and when they're with this guy, they're the council. Yet they all got listings. (laughs) They all got... I don't know what the hell the, I, uh. Now, okay, now, I hate that we're starting off the show this way. Because we're starting off the show kvetching. But I will tell you, I got in touch with the guy who runs the Supergirl blog. Right, Ange. Right? Ange. Yeah, Ange, our buddy Ange, who is a big proponent of the gang in the council, all right? <laughs> and even he, well, as much as anyone can be. Anyway, even he said, this is a little much, little too much. <laughs> <laughs> So, to be fair, it's not just us who feel this way about this. Now, I, I don't think you've talked about the art or anything, have you? No, the art's but Carmen Infantino and Gary Martin, very nice. Gary Martin made a really good inker for Carmen Infantino. I mean, he was a good inker, period. Yes, but, he was. Uh, but his, him, I, him and Infantino, I think, look very nice together. It's one of the nicer, like... Infantino 80s pieces in here, yeah. if that makes any sense. Like, I don't consider his stuff with the Flash and the Rogues... Like his 80s style, because his 80s stuff was a lot looser. This is all in, you, in the more looser family of stuff, but Martin really cleaned it up and made, gave us some nice lines. Yeah, yeah, it's a, re- it's a nice piece. It's a really nice piece. It really is. Uh, I have nothing to say about this character, because we've already talked about them in the third. I got a couple things. In the it's third, inter- oh, God, all right. No, it's just interesting that he used to have rocket tubes for le- instead of having legs. I mean, that's kind of clever, actually, to build a robot that doesn't need – why does a robot need legs? If he right. flies, he doesn't need them. So he gave him rocket tubes. Eventually, he gave him legs. And um, it, he, the guy's a robot factory, which I thought was kind of cool. Did you see how tall he is? He's 10 foot 10 6. 10 foot 6. And he weighs 4,750 4, pounds. That's insane. That's a lot of Twinkies. Anyway, that's all I got. And his eyes are photocellular. <laughs> Now, Thank look, I, I mean, I, Shag, I really feel like we can just go through this because there's probably five more other cancel-related entries in Who's Who. So we'll have more time <laughs> to get into these characters in depth as we go on. You're right. We should move on and save that for later. Yeah. Uh, right. Next up is Matter Eater Lad. Uh, Woo-hoo! It's a, it's a, 
fairly uh, uh, in keeping with a lot of the Legion entries. The 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 text is fairly light. The art is huge by Keith Giffen and Bob Smith. Uh, we have a shot of Matt Aurelia Ledge just standing there, and in the background we see the wall that he presumably chewed through to get there. <laughs> um, I mean, I you know, I don't know what what can you say about Tenzel Ken really that hasn't been said already. I love this character with all my heart. This guy is awesome. Now, admittedly, I know him from the Five Years Later era and stuff like that, and, and the reboots and all that. But I love this character so much. He's funny. He's at other times he's kind of straight. I mean, he, it, he became a senator, you know. And it's funny in here it actually says his Legion career was uneventful. That sounds like so mean. Anyway, um, it, I just absolutely adore this character. They use him for comedic value so well. Now. Uh, I, I do think that the the wall, that hole he ate in the wall, like I don't think he needed a hole that big to climb through. Really, he could have just stepped over some of it. Right, he was hungry. So he must have been really hungry for this, right? right? And his powers. I spend a lot of time thinking about his powers. Like how to like I get the whole super digestion, but the super biting. I mean, he can eat through. He can bite through concrete. You know, why doesn't why isn't he using these teeth as an attack weapon? You know, <laughs> go go bite Universo, man. Do it. Anyway, a um, couple things worth noting. It says he completed personal combat training with distinction. Most Legion entries say, like, they're a fair or average, you know, whatever. He completed with distinction, brother. Look out. And then uh, I just noticed this for the first time, I, or, or put it together. He's from the planet Bismol. And I never put it together Bismol. until reading this. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Pepto-Bismol. Yeah. So I looked it up. Pepto-Bismol has been around since the early 1900s. So it's not like really that long. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. Okay. So clearly, that name was had to be on purpose. Yeah, There's no I'm way that sure. name was on yes. by an accident. Yeah. I just never put that together. It cracks me up. <laughs> Thrilled to see this character in the book. Hooray! <laughs> uh, next up is Mattermaster, uh, drawn by Murphy Anderson, which means we have those trademark little sock-toed booty things that Murphy Anderson loved to. Uh, give <laughs> He was a uh, Hawkman villain, and we see him in the background squaring off against Hawkman, and then we see him getting uh, sucker kicked by Hawkgirl, which is kind of fun. Uh, he's basically, you know, one of your doofy wizard characters. He's got a wand that he floats around and an incredibly embarrassing headgear. Uh, <laughs> but he's been around a long time. He first appeared in Brave and the Bull number 35, which is only one issue after Hawkman and Hawkgirl first appeared. So he's been in it for the long haul. Uh, they talk about later that he joined the Secret Society of Supervillains, and he fought Hawker and Captain Comet, and then it ends with, though Mandrill has never been very successful as a criminal, he is a hard man to keep in jail, and his current whereabouts are unknown. The, super, the, the, the Secret Society of Supervillains reference is kind of funny, because he wasn't around in there very long, because I just read this. He was in a very short period of time, but the issue was really funny. There's like this crazy, disme- almost domestic dispute between Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Because it's Hawkman's turn to cook. All right? And Hawk Girl and Captain Comet see on TV there's these villains. And so they go to fight, and, and, and Shara's like, no, no, I got it. It's your turn to cook. You stay here. I mean, it's hilarious that there's kookiness of this, you know? That Hawkman wasn't allowed to go fight crime because it's his turn to cook dinner. <laughs> anyway, funny stuff. Uh, I love the Murphy Anderson drawing. Now, he, Murphy Anderson did draw this character in the Hawkman book in 1965, so he does have a pedigree with the character. Right. And um, I love Hawkgirl in the Serprint and Hawkman. They look so good. I mean, they look so, so, so good in the Serprint. And I love his face. He's just got that doofy sort of like 
think he's related to Hillbilly Marvel or something. Um, so it's just funny. Yeah, it's a nice drawing. The close-up of him looking all evilly and stuff is good. He looks he looks a lot better without that that wizard's hat on. Well, I think those are his prison togs, and that's his little little wand he made to escape. Right, very nice. Yeah, uh, the logo, eh? But what can you do? Yeah, I'm thinking it's it's almost like it had to be around before. Yeah, yeah. It's so plain. Uh, next up is Maxi Zeus, a Batman villain who was currently appearing in Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, yep. Here he's drawn by Trevor Von Eden and Dick Giordano, who again I always thought made a nice combination. Um, kind of a dull-ish listing. I mean, I love Trevor Von Eden's work; I always have. So I just inherently like it, no matter what it is. The, but it's you know the, the 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 elements are all kind of random. There's a close-up of his face. There's a thing with him hugging his daughter, and then there's him with the bad guys. I think they were called the Olympians. What were they called? The the new uh, Olympians. The new Olympians. The new Olympians. And then they're facing off against Batman. So that's a nice drawing, but it, it all doesn't like hang together terribly well. But uh, but nevertheless, it's cool. I, I think it's a uh, you know I I, I, I like this character. Uh, you know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice listing. He's an interesting character. Now, Trevor on Eden did draw some of those outsiders issues. So that's part of the reason right. that he's okay. doing this Filled piece. Filled in for Jim Apparel. Um, and you're absolutely right that each individual art piece that Trevor's done here is really nice, but yep. you're right that is the overall design is, is lacking. Now, I don't know what Maxi Zeus somehow lucked into a whole bunch of really good artists over the years. He's got Trevor Von Eden here. You know, he he had some stuff in um, Arkham Asylum um, by what was that Dave McKean? Dave McKean. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's got some ama- He's had some great artists draw him, and this is another example of it. So it's just really cool, neat character. Just how brilliant he was, and um, stuff. Like really reading the entry is interesting to learn more about him, and um, I, I think it's a I think it's a pretty entry. But yeah, I I hadn't really thought about the design elements until you mentioned it. Yeah. I like at the end it says he currently resides in the minimum security wing of Arkham Asylum. I like the idea that there's a minimum security wing. Well, he's fairly harmless. <laughs> no, he's not. It, to he's, me, if you're in Arkham Asylum, you're not harmless. I mean, he's crazy, but yeah. Well, that's not. what I'm saying. You know, I mean, I guess, I guess that you have you have levels of maximum in Arkham Asylum. Like, you know, Joker's at the far end. Exactly. So he's not Joker. Keep, he's not. Yeah, he's not Joker. He's not. Yeah. So, all right. Next up, one of my favorites, one of my all-time favorites, Amazing Man, art by Stephen DiStefano and Carl Kiesel. Uh, this was just a great comic, you know, sort of killed too soon. Uh, you know, he's, he, he was a uh, kind of an, an eccentric that lived in, uh, where did he live? Somewhere in, he lived in Queens. I was about to say Brooklyn, but not Brooklyn. He lived in Queens. He was the local eccentric who thought of himself as a sort of minor league superhero and, uh, you know, Amazing Man was one of those series. It was just a bunch of human interest stories, really well done, written by Bob Rosakis. And, uh, you know, it, it, there was no way Amazing Man was ever going to last terribly long. But uh, I always felt like it should have gotten a longer break than 12 issues and a couple of specials, which is all it got. But here he gets a full listing. It's tr- beautifully drawn by Stephen DiStefano and Carl Kiesel. It just looks great. Uh, it just radiates all the joy and happiness of this of this character. So it's it's really I'm really very happy that they included him. Can't say enough good things about how cute this character is. I mean, he is adorable. The artwork by De Stefano and Carl Kiesel is just gorgeous. I mean, looking at that helmet, it just it, the lines on it, the shape of it, his yeah, eyes. Beautiful. It's just this is phenomenal. How this character hasn't been brought back in some fashion. 
It's really weird. There must be some ownership issues or something to... No, no. DC just owns it. <laughs> they just don't want to do anything with it. That's I weird. Just, I, yeah. I mean, even, in the, even in the 2000s when they were bringing back fun, lighthearted books, this would have been the time to do it. Yeah. I, I think it's funny that his uh, – I, I never read the book, but I had a friend who was really into it. I think it's funny that his friend Denton Fix just looks like a beagle. He is a like anthropomorphic dog. <laughs> that was the one weirder, weirdest element. I have to admit one of the things I did love about it is that two of the supporting characters who we see in the background there uh, are – they're a couple. They're uh, Brenda and Eddie. Which is a nod to a Billy Joel song, and mm. at the time I was a huge, huge Billy Joel fan, and like I loved the fact that like that was like a little reference, and unless you knew the Billy Joel song, you didn't know. You know, Brendan Eddie just sounds like you know two names. Yeah, it works just fine. But I mean, it, it is a little nod to a Billy Joel song called "Scenes from an Italian Restaurant," and I really, oh, okay. I really appreciated that little that little reference. I thought it was really cute. And, That's cool. Um, one of the nicest things I thought that they did with Amazing Man was uh, as a way to boost sales going out the door, the final issue had a Dark Knight cover drawn by Frank Miller and it's got Batman, Rob, you know, Carrie Kelly, Robin, and Amazing Man all together, which was, uh, I thought, a oh, nice, nice, awesome. nice little way to go out. That's so cool. Yeah. Now, if you've never seen the character before, you really need to Google it. Um, you know what? I think we'll. Put, I think we can agree this one needs to go up on oh, Tumblr. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, he's got this great, like, sort of Marvel Comics Silver Age bad guy helmet. You know, it's Galactus meets Magneto meets I don't know some random villain That's from Fantastic Four. What's that? You got a little Doctor Polaris in there. Yeah, it's just this cool villain. And then, then he's got you know this great cape and black bodysuit, but he's wearing you know white and red polka dot boxers on top of all of it. So I mean, he's just and he's a midget. I mean, you know, or a dwarf or whatever. He's a little person. It's a uh, it's adorable. This needs so. to be collected. It should be. There's, a, there's, should there's be. twelve issues and two specials that can make a nice little trade paperback. It would, yeah. Um, I like how on the surf print he used panel borders too. Yes, it's great. It's it's a great, great listing. <laughs> what is? Wait a minute. What is he doing with his hand? And that first he's panel, patting his own head. I is think. that what he's doing? I think so. Yeah. He's, he was famous for breaking the fourth wall, wasn't yeah, he? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, right. Next up is Mento from the Doom Patrol by and the Brotherhood of Evil by George Perez. Really, really super. I mean. Perez really gets across the whole uh, crazier than a shithouse rat isness of, <laughs> of Steve Hayden. Never a more apt name given. <laughs> yeah, I mean he, he is really going over the, the deep end here. It's a great drawing. He's uh, you know staring right at the camera and he's got these bolts of energy coming out of his head and he just looks like he's just ranting uncontrollably. He's one of those guys you'd see on a street corner in New York with a tinfoil hat talking about the FBI drilling into his fillings and stuff. Uh, and then in the background, we see him in his old costume, and then him without the any any of his you know, outfits, just regular, and then him with, uh, what's her name, Rita Farr, and then him blasting Changeling. It's, again, it's George Perez. George Perez doing a Teen Titans-related character. You can't beat it. Picture is beautiful. Um, this entry is fun to read because it does follow his long, long path to insanity. I mean, every time I got anywhere near this character in the, in the sphere of comic world, it was like, "Oh, Mento's crazy again." Oh, okay, you know, Steve Dayton's over the over, you know over the bend again. All right, and uh, just one word, one word that's you know most important thing in this entry: Prometheum. Just saying, okay. Prometheum. Uh, yeah, it's it's a great listing. It's just a great, great listing. It's, you know, it's that Perez, Perez in his prime can't really beat that. Yep. Uh, next up is Mira. Uh, my favorite 
not my favorite listing, my favorite character of the book, not my favorite listing, drawn by John Workman, oddly enough, the letterer, who you kind of more famous as a letterer. Oh, I was wondering where yeah. he was, because I did, I did some research. As far as I could tell, it was the only time he ever drew the character. It's the only time he ever drew me I went and – because I was curious about this. Because, I mean, to me, John Workman is, is most famous for doing the lettering on Thor, uh, where he collaborated with Walt Simonson and did a tremendous job. Like, Simonson is a big kind of lettering fan, and he puts a lot more effort, I'd say, into his lettering, his comics, than some other people. And Workman was really, really good at that. I was curious as to why John Workman drew this. So I contacted Who's Who editor, Bob Greenberger, and asked him. And this is what Bob said. He said, uh, John is also an accomplished artist, who, which came before his life as a letterer and production artist. If memory serves, John was interested in contributing, and she and Mira was on the available list, so he selected the Silver Age Babe. <laughs> so that is how John Workman ended up drawing Mira. It, it seems like an, uncon- an incongruous choice to me. Uh, I mean, I like the drawing just fine. Uh, it's, the, the pose is a little unusual, but, uh, but it's, it's nice. We see, her, we see a close-up of her. We see her... Um, uh, mashing with uh, Aquaman, we see her blasting Black Mana, and then we also have her mourning over the death of uh, Arthur Jr. There, oh, um, that just that just gets me. because you read left to right, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh god, yeah. Um, I do wish, frankly, this had been drawn by uh, Jim Aparo, uh, mm. or I don't know why. Like one of the things we noticed, we, we talked about the list issue that Nick Cardi didn't draw anything in Who's Who. Because he's yeah. obviously out of comics. Neither did Ramona Frayden. Mm. And uh, that'll come up in another entry a couple pages away. Uh, I would have liked to have... Now, I mean, Ramona Frayden didn't have a lot of connection to Mira. Because she was off the book by the time Mira was introduced. And Mira only appeared once or twice in Super Friends. But, I mean, she was an Aquaman artist. I would have loved to have seen her do this as well. I don't know why Ramona Frayden is not in any of Who's Who at all. Yeah, there's got to be something about yeah. that. Yeah, but anyway, I, I, lo- Workman, I like I this. Work- yeah, I thought Workman did a, a fine job, and it's unusual looking. I mean, it doesn't look like any other art in the book. That's very true. I mean, he, she's beautiful. That, that close up of her face is just beautiful. Almost looks like a, a romance comic sort of drawing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Now her pose. At first, I could see why you might say it's weird, but I mean, it's clear she's swimming. You know, and that's why. Because no one runs that way. Right, right, right. So she's got to be swimming, which makes perfect sense, you know. And I love – he did a great job with the costume. I love the lighting on uh, the costume, to the way that works with the weird sort of camo thing it's mm-hmm. got going. Just it's, – it's a nice entry. looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is nice. It's a very nice drawing. So, uh, yeah, I, I – the, and the, the logo, I think the logo is from – it looks like it's kind of just slapdash. Uh, but I actually – it's – it's not the logo from her solo strip that ran in the back of Aquaman in the late 70s. So this, mm-hmm. I don't know why they couldn't grab that and drop it in. This one looks like it was just sort of thrown together. But, you know, what can you do? There's, there's an interesting thing in the, in the history of the character where it talks about how Aquaman had to marry an Atlantean citizen. That's right. Yes. But I was like, what? Yep. What? Yep. Like, I don't remember that. And so they make this big deal about all that and how she became that. And, you know, it's like. A lot of detailed information there. Yeah, they threw a lot of roadblocks up. I mean, clearly when she was introduced, they ever intended her to bring her into the book permanently because she first appeared in, like, issued, like, 11 and then came back for 13 and then back for 15, 17, and then got married in 19. So they yeah. Yeah, they clearly had that ready to go even probably were not even waiting for her audience's response. So, uh, yeah. But, yeah, it, yeah, it's it's unusual. It just, like I said, like you, uh, it doesn't look like anything else in the uh, in the series, so. Uh, next up are the Mercenaries, 
Soldiers of Fortune, drawn by Sam Glansman, who were characters from G.I. Combat, the first appearance in G.I. Combat number 242. Um, my only problem with this, I mean, Sam Glansman is a great artist, is that guy in the middle, he looks like he's 12. <laughs> Am I crazy? Does he not look like a teenager? Uh, in the bottom drawing he does, not the top drawing, but okay. the bottom drawing, yes. All right, yeah, yeah. Like, he looks like he's 12. This this particular entry, I think, deserves no. It's like no other entry in the whole series. Um, the way the logo works, mm-hmm. and the way the characters are on the top and then the bottom. I mean, it's 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 different than any other entry in the in the series. I think, and um, it's striking. I don't know that I would want every you know one like this, but this one is very striking. I mean, the mercenaries logo is huge. I mean, it's it's massive. Yeah. And the faces are not just faces. I mean, they're full, almost full busts, you know, and they're fairly large. And I guess it's just because it was three guys and they had a lot of room to breathe, you know, or maybe they just didn't have enough text and so they blew it up bigger. I don't know which. But um, it's it's a very pretty piece, and I, I'm, I was taken by it. Now, he, uh, Sam Glasman, I, I couldn't tie him directly to drawing the mercenaries. I mean, it's probably out there. But, I mean, he drew a lot of GI combat stuff. And um, it's interesting. If you read their entry, they sound very much like the A-Team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, also, the SIR print is unusual in that the color, the, the background images are actually in black, in black line, which is fairly unusual. Um, there's just a single color, red, but the, the actual drawing is in a black line as opposed to most of the other SIR prints, which were a, a color hold. So it gives well, it a slightly the, distinct look. I think your red is your color hold of sorts, even well, though right. it's not doing anything fancy, but, it's, right, but I mean, it looks like blood splatter or explosion. Right, but I mean, the drawings of the gun and the grenade are in black line, which is fairly, True. you know, there really weren't too many of the serpent back images that looked like that. So, okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, next up is Merlin, the uh, expert archer, member of the League of Assassins, drawn by Mark Gruenwald, oddly enough, and Rick Magyar. Mark Gruenwald, famous to be Marvel writer and editor. Uh, I don't yeah. know what he's doing drawing an entry for D- for Huzu here, but he did. Um, it's not bad. It's not the greatest thing in the world. but uh, and What? I, what? I think it's really good. Okay. All right. One of the things that, that it throws me about it is how many arrows he's carrying. <laughs> I didn't notice that. I mean, he's, he's carrying yeah. about 50, 50 to 60 arrows. I mean, how does he ever run anywhere? It's true. He does have um, a very large quiver on his back, right. which is two sided, and then he's got a two thigh <laughs> four, quivers, and then yeah, two four calf more quivers. quivers. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, if you're <laughs> if you're an arrow guy, that makes sense. I mean, think about it. Because once you run out, you're out. You know, unless you're so. going to you know unless you're going to chase him down. I guess. So. I guess so. Uh, yeah, in the background, st- I'm sorry. Yeah, in the background. No, you, we see no. Him. Go ahead and do the art. Go for yeah, it. In the background, in the serpent, we see him taking on Green Arrow. You see him taking on Batman, and then there's a close-up of him as well. And, uh, and a the shot of, uh, I believe, the Sensei from, the again, the League of Assassins. That close-up's awesome. Like, he looks really cool. I mean, he looks very gaunt. And, uh, you know, his cheekbones are sticking out, and the goatee's sticking out, and the, the Widow Peak haircut. I think, I, just, oof, I love it. It's a real soul-patchy issue of who's who. <laughs> It's fun to note that he's got a bunch of trick arrows and a rocket pack, too. You know, a lot like Green Lantern or Green Arrow. Now, his first appearance was Justice League of America. That really surprised me. Yes, it was. It's in an issue that features some art by Neil Adams, which is why it's like a. Uh, they go to Nanda Parabat and they get involved. Of course with, they do. They get involved with Dead Man and stuff. It's, it's, it's relatively famous because Aquaman fe- features prominently on the cover. 
Oh, and it, okay. it is, and it was the issue of Justice League on sale the month I was born. <laughs> that is a lot of information. A little fun fact for you out there. Uh, <laughs> also, I think isn't this character hasn't this character been brought into the Arrow TV show? I believe he has. Now I'm only on like the second episode. Now okay. his best friend is named Tommy Merlin, but okay. I think they've brought Merlin in as an assassin as a separate character. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So uh, you know, hey, he's made it into live action. It's, it's, he's. He's been in animation as well. There was that Green Arrow short where he oh, was saving the right. prince. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Cool character. Yeah. You know, I've been watching. Like because of Arrow, I've watched certain a couple things on YouTube, like speed speed archery. People who actually do fast draw archery stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not as fast as they make it look in the cartoons, but it's still watching is like a hell of a lot faster than anything I could ever do. Wow. It's just pretty impressive. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's nice. Uh, next up is, I know this is going to be one of your favorites, Jake. Mary, the Girl of a Thousand Gimmicks. <laughs> drawn by Rick Stasi and Carlos Villagran. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is obviously a Golden Age character. She first appeared in Star Spangled Comics number 61 as Mary, and then in, appeared, appeared in number 82 as Gimmick Girl. And she's standing there with a little gun that says, Bang, you're dead, and she's just cute as Dickens. Uh, in the Serpent, we see her using, I guess, like a uh, some sort of little toy thing that she's got. I guess that it's like a box that shoots bolos out of him, and she's using them. Probably like, yo- those are probably yo-yos. Are they yo-yos? All right. Mm, like yo-yos popping out of a box. Anyway, she's using the knock the crap out of some weird devil-suited guy. And then we see her uh, also fight, fighting crime with a star-spangled kid. Yep. Now, why do you think this is one of my favorites? She's a redhead. Oh, uh, she is a redhead. And she's a Golden Age character. I, there's so many things I love about this entry because it's crazy. First of all, as you mentioned, she has a subtitle or sub, a right. sub name. Girl of a Thousand Gimmicks, yes. Love that. Immediately right off the top. She has almost as much text as Batman. Yeah, <laughs> she really does have a lot of history. She's got so much. It's crazy. Um, Rick Stassi, I looked, I was like, oh, so when did he draw her? This is the only time he ever drew her. Right. He kind of came to DC through the New Talent Showcase, which is kind of cool. Couple things worth mentioning. This poor girl has like the most twisted and depressing history. It, it doesn't sound depressing when you read it, but if you really think through it, it really was. First of all, she's the adopted sister of, of Star Spangled Kid. You know, and if you think about him, he got frozen, you know, in another dimension or suspended animation or whatever it was for like what, th- 40 years. So she loses her, her brother. Then she marries friggin' Brainwave, the bad guy. And, uh, you know, she fi- later on her father, it turns out her father was secretly a criminal. And, and I mean, she's just got this really, really, really sad, depressing history. And there's so much of it. So, but the Serpent is so jam-packed. <laughs> there's a lot going on. I mean, it looks like this was designed to be a much larger image because there is so much happening. Um, just love it. I'm a huge, huge fan of this. Yeah, And anybody connected to Star Spangled Kids is pretty cool, you know. Yeah, it's cute. It's a cute listing. You know, yeah, it's you, fun. Yeah, it's fun. So, and she's from Civic City, which sounds like such a nice place. <laughs> you know, Civic City. Yep. Next up is Metallo, drawn by Greg Feigston, who you know mostly from like, mostly known for his inking of Jack Kirby. This is one of the few times I can think where he's drawing something solo. Um, it's not a bad drawing. It's a fun pose. You see him on the on the uh, the bottom, whipping off his uh, shirt to uh, put the whammy down on Superman. The thing that I find most disturbing is the close-up of him in the background without the mask. <laughs> he looks like a living corpse. He looks like a zombie 
because his eyes are deep set in his head, and he's—it's very, very upsetting to me. <laughs> well, there's multiple things going on that kind of freak me out. There's that that face is definitely terrifying. Then in the foreground, the color picture of him, his mouth gaping open, just like, <laughs> and he's holding it. <laughs> he's holding his skull like. He's performing Hamlet. <laughs> what the hell is that about? It's so odd. It's like, I mean, hey, I love it. I found. <laughs> I, yeah, right. I love it, but it's so weird. It's so very, very weird. So it's, um, it's a fun drawing. It's, I mean, it's, it's definitely a Bronze Age drawing because there's, you know, a sky scooter in the background. Um, can't deny that. He, he does, <laughs> the word I have written down here is maniacal. It is. Oh, it, uh, yes, it absolutely is. I looked up Greg Thigston to see how much penciling he had done. And at this point, really, the majority of his penciling was just in Mad Magazine. Mm. Well, this has so. a very cartoony look to it, so that doesn't surprise me terribly. So Now, you know, for those of you at home who don't know, Mattel is probably most well-known for having a kryptonite heart. Right. Um, I, liked, I always think of him as the guy who fought Blue Devil, but that's just me. Now, here's something that blew my mind when I read this. He's the second Metallo. His brother was the first one. <laughs> well, huh? Really? So, I, I, you know, being such a post-crisis baby, I, I guess I don't know much about Bronze Age Metallo. But it's just like, what? So, very, very odd that. It's, it's funny. I mean, as a villain, do you, like, set your expectations lower when you try and defeat Superman and you can't do that? And then you go after Blue Devil and you get defeated by Blue Devil? Are you just are you just like oh man you know I'm really moving down the the hero chain here. <laughs> That's not nice. Well, That's you know, not- come on. I'm just saying, Superman's your marquee guy, and then you sort of lower your expectations and go after the devil. The thing I think about most about Metallo, oddly enough, is this offhanded little thing in um, story I've mentioned many times before. Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, which is you know the quote unquote final Superman story. Um, Alan Moore works in all of the Superman, virtually all of the big Superman villains. And Metallo is in it pretty early on, and he and a bunch of other, like, sort of, like, robot Metallos storm the Daily Planet building to to go after Superman's friends. And one of them grabs Lois, and Metallo says, that's her, the alien-loving tramp. Oh, my gosh. And it's just this weird little throwaway line that Alan Moore gave, but it was, like, something... Like, I I thought, like, really kind of creepy and weird that, like, one of the villains had that perspective, you know, that, like, Mm -hmm. he thought of Lois Lane as, like, this harlot who was, you know, romancing an alien. It's kind of like a racist line and sort of, like, all sort very judgmental. There was just something about it that really sort of creeped me out, and it's probably not a personality trait that Metallo ever showed before or since. But that line just always stuck out with me. <laughs> Metallo had a particular issue with Lois Lane having a romance with Superman for some reason. Weird. His green mask freaks me out. It is. It's creepy. Let's move on. Next up is uh, <laughs> our two-page spread by uh, The Metal Men by Ross Andrew, which is only appropriate because he drew many of the Raw Metal Men adventures in the 60s, and Terry Austin. Um yeah, Kapow. The, the Kapow. It's really nice. It's a lot of fun. I mean, Russ Andrew used to, was like one of like the big DC guy. I mean, he did a lot of stuff for Marvel and DC, of course. But he did a ton of DC stuff in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and then not so much in the 80s. So this is sort of like a little comeback for him to, for him to be brought back and, and do this. It's a great drawing. I mean, it's, and 
you're inked by Terry Austin. You can't go wrong with that. Um, and we see all of the, the metal men together. Uh, there's not much going on in the serpent. There's really just a little shot of them flying around. But you don't really need it because you have this really sweet group shot of all of them. Love, love, love this entry. Love the Metal Men. Been a huge fan. And, you know, I've, I've read lots of Metal Men comics over the years. How has this never been an animated series? Um, well, they, I, I want to say they appeared in Brave and the Bold. Right, but I'm like in like an 80s, you know? Like of a, their like own? A team of I'm robots? That I'm, sure somebody has, I'm sure somebody has tried to get it off the ground. Right. They had to have. Right. I mean, even DiDio. These are, these are some of Dan DiDio's favorite characters. Right, right. So, he wrote um, them in uh, Wednesday comics. Yes, he did. Now, there, there was this funny thing in here. Like, Nameless really caught me by surprise. I don't remember this Nameless character. Tin's, like, little mechanical girlfriend he made. And I guess she doesn't speak or anything. She was kind of weird, and that's a weird relationship. Anyway, I didn't remember her, and seeing her here is just like, what? Now, they have a history, though, of fiddling around with the Metal Men, because, I mean, at one point, Magnus becomes a Metal Man, like Viridian or something like that. And then my favorite was during, and, and then I guess it was the 2000s, Metal Men was being done by the guys who did Justice League International, the goofy stuff, the fun stuff, you know, Giffen, uh, Demetrius, yeah. and, and McGuire. And they introduced a character, um, I know I'm off the reservation here, but anyway, they introduced a character called Copper, a girl character, and she was part of the team. And it's just, it was funny because, like, every teammate would always forget she was there or who she was. Like, they'd be on a mission and be like, oh, you joined us. She's like, I've been here the entire time. <laughs> you know, it's, it was this funny running gag. It was just, she just was beneath their notice because she wasn't an original member. And uh, anyway, I think it fit well. But here's an, a great joint. I love how lead is stepping on Mercury's foot. Mercury's overreacting to it. You know, Tin looks timid. and It's just a really well done. And, and Tina's all wrapped up around uh, Magnus's leg. That was, always, that was always a creepy angle that she always had the hots for the guy that created her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did I mention she's hot, though? Yes. yes okay. Did. I love, I wanna, ja- I I wanna, love uh, Doc Magnus' suit jacket. That is awesome. It's always super fly, that yeah, orange. That yeah. <laughs> I want a respondometer. Could you get me one? <laughs> yeah, they said there feels like there could be more to be done with this, the Metal Men, like yep. an animated series or something. You know? That'd be great. Agreed. Uh, next up is Metamorpho. Metamorpho, Metamorpho. Uh, <laughs> aside from the slightly abbreviated text, I would say this drawing is like the the like epitome of a who's who listing. You've got a central image of the hero in an action pose. You've got their logo, their classic logo. And in the surprint, you've got them in action. You've got them without the mask. You've got them like their sort of erstwhile love interest. And then you've got a couple of their supporting characters slash villains. I mean, and I'm sorry, I forgot to mention it. It's drawn by Jim Aparo, of course, because even the outsiders. Uh, it's, it's great. It's great. As I mentioned earlier, I'm kind of sorry that Ramona Fraden, of course, is not included in Husu. She would have been perfect to do Metamorpho because if she has a history with the character. But short of that, Jim Apparel, I'm not going to complain about this. It's a great drawing. I've always loved Metamorpho. I thought it was a really fun character. And, uh, you know, I think it's just, it's like straight over the plate. I think it's great. It's interesting you mentioned that there's not a lot of text. And he probably deserved a lot more text. But because he's part of Batman and the Outsiders, and we've seen this through every issue of Who's Who, anybody directly related to Batman and the Outsiders has very small amount of text. It's right. just something they did. Now, I learned a couple things about this character I didn't realize. Um, I guess for a while there, he wore a synthetic mask, so he would look like Rex Mason. Yes. Which I, 
one of the things I always liked about this character was the tragic aspect of, you know, he couldn't go in public without being, you know, looking horrible. Um, so having the synthetic mask sort of just kind of took away from that. It just, you know, it's like, oh, I don't like that. And then I didn't realize the meteor acts, you know, it's like his own kryptonite. You know, it, it, it gives him problems. The, the, the thing that gave him his powers, if he gets near it again, gives him trouble. So, hmm. Yeah, he's anyway. a good character. Like I said, I... I, I, I love the strong. <laughs> I really do. Yep. It's great. Uh, next up is Metron, drawn by Jack Kirby and Greg Thiesten. Uh, of course, one of the uh, New Gods characters. First appeared in New Gods number one. Uh, this is a character that ab- they absolutely should have done a superpowers figure of. And then, like, maybe you get in, like, five proof of purchases and you get the chair. <laughs> They're not going to give away the chair. The chair is too big of a thing just to give away with the figure, but he needs his chair. He needs a superpower lounger to really get the full effect. Superpower lounger. If the superpower loungers are rocking, don't come a knocking. <laughs> I, I love in the text pieces, there's some interesting things here about how he uh, he invented the boom tubes. I didn't realize that. Uh, I love that he uh, he was a teacher to Darth Vader. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, people Essek, whatever, turned evil. I mean, it's very much a Kenobi-Anakin situation, it sounds like. And then there's this weird little entry here at the end. When last seen, Metron was returning from a long quest, towing a large, young, uninhabited planet behind him. What Metron uh, means to do with this planet has yet remains a mystery. <laughs> what? You know, as somebody, as you do, sometimes you got to tug a planet around. Come on. It's just very specific. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> love the art. Absolutely love it. Kirby and Theakston, you know, just totally rocking it, man. That chair is so fly. Kirby oh. is one of those guys, Wally Wood was another one, who excelled at drawing machines. Yes. Machines that probably didn't have any, you know, literal purpose because they didn't make any sense as, as actual constructs. But they were awesome to look at. You know, they just were like, just behold, you were like, whoa. Just the sheer imagination it took to draw something that complex. So I... Metron is like a perfect guy for him because he gets to sit in that chair and just imagine all the CDs he can play with that thing. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, next up is Midnight. And no, your eyes are not deceiving you. This is not Will Eisner's The Spirit. It's Will Eisner's Midnight, who first appeared, <laughs> <laughs> who first appeared in Smash Comics number 18. Smash Comics was, of course, a quality series, not a DC series, but this is one of the characters they purchased when DC took over all those uh, companies' characters, are by Michael T. Gilbert from uh, Mr. Monster, who was one of my, that was one of my favorite comics in the 80s, was Eclipse's Mr. Monster. Uh, he's basically, you know, like a, the spirit. I mean, <laughs> no other way around it. He's essentially the spirit with some slight alterations. Uh, and he looks really cool, as drawn by, uh, as drawn by Gilbert. It's, it's a fun listing. It's a rare moment where the, some of these serpent images are overlaid on top of the main figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a really cool logo. His the M is a clock, and then you got the rest of his name in, in blue. Uh, it's 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 a sharp it's a sharp fun drawing. That logo is freaking sweet. Yeah. Now, when you say it's Will Eisner's Midnight, I mean, he, did he have a hand in creating? Midnight? I believe he created Midnight. Yes. Really? Because well, the research I did on it uh, said that basically, yes, he is a spirit carbon copy on purpose, and was created while Will Eisner was at war. Because Will Eisner was in the war for a while, right, so this was created to sort of fill the gap. And, um, I mean, yeah. he, he premiered only six months after The Spirit. It's not like there was a long time in between the two. It's not like The Spirit was, you know, 
I, I doubt he was a household name by that point even, really. You know, it's interesting. And I can't, I can't rave enough about this artwork. I mean, this makes me want to go find Mr. Monster and read it right now yeah, because the artwork fun here book. is so Such good. A fun book. He's got a vacuum gun. <laughs> and he's from, you ready? In quotes, Big City. Big City, yeah. <laughs> Love those things. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I shouldn't say that, 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 he, was, uh, that uh, he created by Will Eisner. I always thought he was, um, but he, he was right. Been. He was, a, he was, uh, he was, oh, I'm sorry. He was created by Jack Cole, not Will Eisner. Jack Cole, creator hmm. of Plastic Man. So yeah. I apologize for that mistake. Like that. Uh, but yeah, he was clearly meant as a, the, the, their version of the spirit, I guess. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, next up is Mind Boggler. I think our the first Firestorm villain we've had in a little while. I guess since when's the last? I can't think of the last Firestorm. I don't know the last one, but yeah, it's it, it's this is definitely a Firestorm villain, and um, yeah, it's it's all. I mean, it's it's we've, it's been a while since we've had one. Yeah, art by Joe Brzezowski and Rick Magyar. Uh, nice drawing. We see all kinds of crazy stuff going on. We see Firestorm in the background in a couple different shots. She is very punky, uh, <laughs> and uh, she's got uh, MB on her shirt. Just to remind everybody of her name. Right across her boobs. Right yep. Up. Big old. Um, I am going to commit the cardinal sin and just say I'm not a fan of this character and I'm not a fan of this entry. <gasps> da, da, da. I know, the Firestorm guy going against type. Um, it, there's a lot of weird ironies in this. I've told you before how I can't stand mental powers. Right? Right. In, in superheroes. I'm not a fan of it. I think it all stems from right here. This character. Because, you know, I started collecting Firestorm pretty early in my collecting career. And she appeared, like, two issues into my time collecting. Like, my first issue I bought was 28. The next one I bought was 30. And I think she was in 30. Okay. And the the, the deal is she's an illusion-casting character who, who can cast extraordinarily believable illusions that can even affect you physiologically if you believe them. And what would happen is Ronnie, who was in control of Firestorm, would be affected by the illusions. But Professor Stein wasn't. And so Professor Stein would be yelling at Ronnie like, no, that's not real. That's not really there. Don't do that. And she was famous for a lot of these, you know, demons and hell and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I just didn't appeal to me. And her punk rockness was a little, a lot over the top. I mean, I don't, I don't know that anyone really dressed like that who were punk rockers back then. <laughs> it's what the media wanted you to think they look like. Anyway, and she worked for like the 2000 Committee and the Assassin's Bureau and stuff. Anyway, it, it's just... I, I never took to this character. And so this entry, even the art's not spectacular. It's not terrible or anything. It's not like the worst thing I've ever seen. There's certainly worse entries in, in Who's Who. But it's not, you know, a home run either. So, uh, you know, I'm just, I guess I'm, I, I think, I guess Joe did a, as good a job as he could with what he had. But in general, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed in the character. And when she showed up, I remember I used to get mad like when she would show up. Did, she, like, come, oh. did she show up a lot? Uh, in fact, she was part, well, not a lot, but she was in a few times. She was part of the Blue Devil Firestorm crossover that was, oh, okay. should have been gold, but was such a mess. And she, pretty sure she went on to be in the Suicide Squad. Ah, okay. All right. In fact, I think, didn't she get trapped in a, computer and became like uh, almost like a computer genie i think Ooh, I'm, okay. <laughs> i hope i'm not getting that mixed up anyway someone uh, someone let me know if i'm wrong on that anyway <laughs> okay uh another character with a similar power it's mirage 
a Batman villain drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz. Killer listing. Absolutely. I friggin' love this drawing. Might be my, eh, maybe my favorite drawing of the book. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. It's him casting his spell. He's got the, he's got his, uh, sort of crazy mirage powers going over his glove. And then in the background is this really, uh, icky-looking sort of creature that is grabbing Batman and Robin, and then there's... It's sort of a collage, but it's also one giant image. It's beautifully brought to life by Bill Sienkiewicz, of course. It's it's a good... This is one of those, like, you would not think to pair Bill Sienkiewicz up with this sort of obscure DC... Yeah, uh, obscure Batman villain, but it really works perfectly. He actually makes this guy look kind of badass, and the powers look, look really great. And Batman punching Mirage in the background there. It's It's a great listing. You know, the irony is the page before was Mindboggler, who had illusion powers. Then you get to Mirage, who has illusion powers. Right. Now, I will tell you, if you're going to draw weird illusion powers, this is done right. You know, uh, whereas the other one, it didn't really appeal to me much. This is just amazing as far as the illusion and just the insanity of the picture. Uh, so you contrast the two, and this one is a clear winner. Now, Mirage had only had one appearance up to this point, and Sienkiewicz wasn't the one who drew it. So I think what happened was someone called him up and said, hey, Bill, will you draw Mirage for us? And he probably did this awesome drawing of Danny Moonstone <laughs> yeah. and had it ready to go. And because, you know, he draws new mutants. And then they go like five minutes beforehand. They're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is DC, Bill. Mirage from Batman. He's like, what the funk? What? All right. And he knocked out this amazing piece for them. You know, because, you know, anyway, it's a gorgeous piece, and I agree, it's my favorite in the book, too. Yeah. I wonder how Mirage and Scarecrow never teamed up. They have sort of similar MOs, you know, going after Batman. I'm pretty sure this guy went to obscurity, although this entry alone could have saved him. Yeah, he looks great. He looks really cool. Like I said, it, <laughs> yeah, he it does. He's the right artist to make somebody doofy-looking pretty cool. So, it yeah. Looks sweet, so. Well, he doesn't even look doofy. He just looks generic. I think he looks you know? kind of doofy. I think non when not drawn by St. Cavage, he looks kind of doofy. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> uh, next up is Mirror Master, drawn by Carmen Infantino, of course, and by Steve Mitchell. Uh, most of Infantino's uh, rogue, Flash Rogue's gallery drawings were of this stripe. They were very classic poses, straight-ahead drawings, hands on hips, you know, chin, mm-hmm. chin up. There you go. And then in the background, we see him zapping after Flash. And then we see him without his mask, and then we see him in jail using his mirrors to help escape. I mean, this Mirror Master, you know, one of, like, the big DC villains of the Silver Age. First, yep. He first appeared in Flash 105, which is the first issue of Silver Age Flash's solo comic. So, oh, that's right. Yeah, because yeah. it continued the numbering of the Golden Age series. So, you know, and he was, again, like, like uh, Matter Master, he was there from the beginning. You know, uh, <laughs> reading his entry, a couple things cracked me up. He... <laughs> There's a mirror factory in the prison he was in. Sure, why not? Which <laughs> is just sort of like a, well, what? Okay, sure, I'm just going to go with that. And then uh, it talks in here, clearly they're setting something up. Clearly they're setting something up. Because it talks about their mirror master was killed by the alien Corona during the so-called, again, so-called, so-called. Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, whether any new criminal will adopt the role of Mr. mirror master remains to be seen. Clearly they're setting that up. Because he, another guy did adopt the Mirror Master guys and took over after Sam Scudder died. And because normally, you know, you, a villain dies, you just assume they're either dead or they're coming back. You don't assume someone else is going to take the mantle of the character. So obviously they knew what they were doing when they wrote this entry. So, and then um, <laughs> it's just love under like, it talks about the gimmicks his mirrors could do. 
He he once used a mirror to switch legs with the Flash, <laughs> enabling him to run at super speed. Because that, that makes cover, that yeah. makes so much physiological sense. <laughs> of course, all I need is Flash's legs, and I'm super fast. <laughs> Bob Haney, oh, well. Bob Haney science is what they call it. <laughs> I love it. Good stuff. Right. Uh, I see. That, that, that's a, this is. I'm sorry. You know, I was, we were done, but like this is. This is a perfect example of why this issue is is not full of superstars, but it's so much fun. It, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very cheerful. It's just it's cheerful goofiness. Yeah. <laughs> um, next up is Miss Liberty, character from Tomahawk, uh, who is a sort of a proto-superheroine. Uh, she is also related. She's a distant relative of, of uh, uh, Libby Lawrence, who, of course, is uh, Liberty Bell. Um, the thing that was drawn by Don Lomax, who I'm not too terribly familiar with. Um, one of the a lot of war comics. A lot of as far as I could tell, he never drew her. Right. One of the things, the, the thing that number one thing I think about when I look at this drawing is it's a nice drawing. I mean, the costume is like uber patriotic. Um, is good lord, those heels look uncomfortable. <laughs> those, <laughs> those are like that. You know, those are the kind of things somebody wears that you, you know, Wall Street guys pay to have them step on their neck for an hour to tell them that they've been bad, bad boys. I mean, those are really crazy dominatrix boots. But well, I then I'll never look, ha- look at that. I'm sorry. Finish up. I apologize. I don't know how she ever managed to run around the battlefield in those things. <laughs> well, and then look at uh, look at her waistline. She's wearing some like crazy girdle to fit into that. Yeah, she too. is a it, tiny little thing. Yeah. <laughs> poor poor woman. Puts the, she suffered for her art. <laughs> Um, the Liberty Bell thing had to be a retcon. I gotta assume. I mean, right? Yeah, I'm sure that was what Roy Thomas is doing. Yeah. And did you read? Did you read her entry? Yes. So tragic. <laughs> uh, much like Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks, uh, Miss Liberty. They mentions her death. It says Miss Liberty died shortly before the end of the Revolutionary War when she was fighting Hessian troops who had stolen the huge bell that was later called the Liberty Bell. Connection. In the course of the battle, the bell fell atop her, crushing her to death. God! <laughs> Apparently her body was found by Tomahawk along with the bell. Liberty Lawrence, a.k.a. Liberty Bell, the patriotic custom heroine in World War II, is a descendant of Bessie Lynn, a.k.a. Miss Liberty. Yeah. Just, oh. Crushed to death. <laughs> her, and, the, and, and, you know, as you said, Mary, you know, married a supervillain. I mean, just, what? These poor ladies. Oh. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a nice drawing. I know. I said I like the costume. I'm a little surprised she got a full page because she really did not have a whole lot of, you know, like that many appearances and really does not. But I guess maybe the connection to Liberty Bell. I guess they figured it was kind of like a legacy thing. I'm not sure. She she doesn't merit a full page. No, but not. I'm glad that, I'm glad she got yeah. it. I love it when you know little minor characters like this. Yeah, get yeah. I'm sure Angel. I'm sure Angel ran, write in some tirade about how. Some forgotten Supergirl villain from 1984 deserved the page instead of her. Just whatever. think, we could have given another council character a listing. I mean, <laughs> what the hell? Jeez. <laughs> uh, next up is The Mist, another drawing by Murphy Anderson, because he is a, well, he's, I was going to say he's a Hawkman villain, but no, he's a Starman villain, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a weird drawing because um, my most... My familiarity with The Mist comes from the three-part Secret Society of Supervillains JLA-JSA story from JLA number 195 to 197. It was drawn by George Perez. And when George Perez drew The Mist, he was entirely made of smoke, of, yes. of mist, and he was genuinely creepy. Here, Murphy Anderson gives The Mist 
like flesh head and flesh hands, and the mist part looks more like a robe. And to me, the effect is a lot less creepy. Uh, well, than the you way just that... described it exactly how his powers used to work. Okay. It was his robe that turned to mist. Okay. That's exactly right. And the head and hands would be normal. He even talks about here in the entry, if you know, if you didn't bother to read it or whatever. Um, <laughs> talks about that, how eventually he became fully missed, like he was in the Justice League story. Right, but I'm saying I wish they could have been shown him, look, shown him looking like that as opposed to Well, this. I think that's what his head is at the bottom. I guess. It's hard to say because it's, it's in the surprint, so it doesn't yeah. start to tell, but yeah. I, I think this is one of Murphy Anderson's best drawings because it's different. It's not hero, you know, hands on hips kind of stuff. True. This is there's some creepiness going on here, and all the the wavy lines and stuff, really, really different, really out there. I mean, it's as far as technically, you know, beautiful. No, it's not his most beautiful drawing, but it's one of his most interesting ones, definitely. And you know, obviously, I'm, I'm a big Starman fan. I shouldn't say obviously. I'm sorry. I am a big Starman fan, and seeing this entry, I mean, actually. I sh- I considered doing the Starman omnibuses actually with the in-stock trades, this, you know, that kick off the show because those are so great and Mist plays a, such a big role in those. Just really cool. There's only one one thing worth mentioning here. Like, I love it when characters just suddenly develop powers that make no sense and usually are forgotten, but somebody digs them out for who's who. You know, um, let's see. Uh, he, uh, he, at one point, his hip... Uh, I'm sorry, his Inviso solution enabled him to transmit his voice from afar, and he could hypnotically force victims to obey his commands, which have absolutely nothing to do with turning to mist. <laughs> but it's just like, yeah, he needs this power for this issue, and no one will remember, right? And they dig it up for this. Cracks me up. So, nice, nice one. And, um... Yeah, he's, it almost get, looks like he's got a two-color surprint, you know, blue and purple, mm-hmm. but it's really just clever working in the drawing. Right. It's nice. Right. Uh, next up is Mr. America. Woo! Uh, who first appeared in his uh, uh, other identity as Tex Thompson in a little book called Action Comics Number 1, which some of you may be familiar with. He later <laughs> appeared as Mr. America in Action Comics Number 33, and then later again as the Americamando. Mm-hmm. In Action Comics number 54. Uh, so I think technically he could join the All-Star Squadron three times. Uh, he's a, <laughs> he was a private investigator at government agent. He kind of looks like a uh, very American version of Zorro. He's got a whip and he's got mm. a domino mask and a little, the little uh, pencil-thin mustache. Uh, and as you might suggest from the name, he was, you know, a World War II era character. I mean, he sort of really... He wasn't created for World War II, obviously. He came before that. But they made him into a super kind of American character, or patriotic character, after the World War II started. And we see him in the background basically doling out some pain to some bad guys. He's whipping, the, whipping a gun out of some guy's hand, and then he's punching some Nazis, as, of course, Mr. America is going to do. So, uh, At the end, it mentions the American commander was assigned to masquerade as Nazi officers, sabotage Axis plants, and aid Axis victims. American Commando operated successfully in both Europe and the Pacific, but it's not known whether he survived the end of World War II. Dude, probably one of my favorite entry, overall entries in the book. Oh, I should mention, um, art by Rich Buckler and Romeo Tango. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Gorgeous artwork. I love it. I mean, the design is not 
like insanely creative, but it's really well done. I just I like the image. I love the placements of them. I love the the logo kicks all the ass. It's just so cool. And the the serpent. I figured you would have like nailed that. I'm sure that's got to be him looking like a famous 40s movie star. I don't know. You, you know this stuff. A lot than me. of those guys look like that. He kind of looks a little Errol, Errol Flynn. He looks a little Ronald Coleman. He looks a little William Powell. I mean, a lot of those guys had that look. Uh, Rudolph Valentino certainly as well. So it's kind of a, probably an amalgamation of all those guys. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. That's what I needed. Uh, he's got this great MO. He would whistle Yankee Doodle. <laughs> and at the end of a fight, he would always leave behind a red, white, and blue feather. And his sidekick at one point took on the name Fat Man. That's right, yes. <laughs> I mean, this entry is just so awesome. As you said, he's got three identities, and he goes, like, FDR says, you know what? You're already awesome. I need you to be even more of a badass. <laughs> now you're a mere commando. Go kick some, you know, Ratsies. I mean, he just, oh, he went from friggin' cool to friggin' awesome. So I, I am in love with this entry. I'm in love with this character. You know, he's an all-star scorer. I want to say he showed up later. Or no, there was a new Mr. America or new America Mando in, J- in JSA for a while there. The, the modern day series, I want to say. I think a, a Fed became the new Mr. America, if I remember right. But that's so cool. I thought he also played a fairly big role in that Golden Age miniseries by James Robinson and Paul Smith. He probably he did. I read that did. a long time ago since I've read it. I don't exactly remember. But I think, I think I remember he played a fairly large role in that, too. I think he did. I need to reread that because it was really yeah, – it ended theory. up being an Elseworlds because they took the story in some really dark yeah, areas. Yeah, they did. Yeah. But, uh, oof, man, this, yeah. th- this entry just gets me excited all over again for, like, <laughs> Golden Age characters. And not in a bad stuff. way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, next up is Mr. Adam. Drawn by my former Cubert School instructor, Michael Chen, and by Mike DiCarlo, Mike and Mike. Uh, the, he is a, uh, Mr. Adam is a Captain Marvel villain, as it mentions. He refers to bring Captain Marvel Adventures number 78. He is really fun looking. He's got a big bullet head. Uh, you know, it's funny. DC had the toughest time replicating sort of the fun look of C.C. Beck uh, in their later Shazam version, but... but Chen and DiCarlo do a fairly credible job of it. In the background here, we see him uh, punching Captain Marvel. Like, Captain Marvel looks really fine. looks really – it's cartoony but sort of suitable. It's a, it's a really good drawing. And then there is that shot of him without his head, uh, as we see. Oh. He's, he's, Captain Marvel's holding on to it. So, uh, I guess looks, that's a thing. Yeah, him, him his head popping off uh, was something that happened sort of uh, relatively uh, frequently. It, it would work well for a toy. Yes, it would. Yeah, we'll switch in the back, or you punch him. Like you punch his chest, and it makes the head pop off. That'd be great. I love this drawing. I think it's super fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I and we'll talk about this when we get to the feedback. I mean, I, I have a history of knocking Shazam characters, but uh, I love this. I think it's super fun. He's basically like a goofy Silver Age Ultron, is what he is. Really, if you read this, I mean, it's what he, it's kind of the way it works. Um, his history is, is the, it's interesting. The, the entry itself is written really strangely, like a lot of minutia and a lot of just, it just, it doesn't read like a lot of other entries. That's all. It's just, it's an odd one. So, but the art looks great. Love it. Love the bullet head. And his eyes are also photocellular. Well, yeah. So we've got two, <laughs> two soul patches, two photocellular eyes in this issue of Fusa. <laughs> Sensing a theme. It's something I'm keeping track of. Um, next up is Mr. E. Get it? Mr. E. First appeared in Secrets of Haunted House number 31, drawn by Dan Spiegel. 
Um, Dan, Dan, look, this pose, really boring, i got to say. Mr. E, just standing there. Um, nevertheless, I love Dan's Beagle's work. I always have. Um, I, I think what I see in Dan Spiegel is what other people see in Kurt Swan. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't like Dan Spiegel. I think his stuff is really boring and stiff. And I don't see that when I look at his stuff. To me, it's like it's so well-drawn and so sort of solid that I love it. But I could see how other people might feel the same way. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah. I kind of give people their, their credit. Um, yeah, he was basically one of the mystery characters. I mean, later on, he's been sort of teamed up with Phantom Stranger and um, all the other sort of mystic characters. Alan Moore did some of that, too. Uh, you know, he's got a great suit. He's all white except for his black boots that he walked around in. Uh, and he's blind. You just mentioned mm-hmm. he is, uh, he is uh, a blind character. Yeah, I, I want to I say he even went like nuts and was trying to hunt down and kill Timothy Hunter. I want to say in the books of magic stuff later. Oh, I wish he'd done that. I think <laughs> I think he had his own miniseries too. Though. Yes, he did. He did have his own miniseries. Mystery. I seem to really remember enjoying that. So, but all that was after this, obviously. Sorry. Um, well, Dan Spiegel also drew Mister E in Secrets of Haunted House, which is you know why he got to do this entry. But it's just it's sort of this this, this entry is sort of like a, it's a, a little bit of polar opposites, like. Like you said, the main four character is very bland. I mean, it's, it, the detail's nice, but he's just standing there. Then in the background is quite possibly the most disturbing <laughs> image in the entire Who's Who run. Um, he is – not only is he wrestled this guy to the ground, in one hand he's holding a stake over the guy's chest. In the other hand, he's holding a hammer, and he's about to hammer that stake into this dude. Yep. Now, sure, I get it. He's a bad guy. He's a monster. But that's just a really disturbing visual. Like, even now, I'm like, oh, my God, he's about to do that guy in. (laughs) He's not just going to arrest the guy. He's going to kill him. (laughs) Now, if you read the entry, you find out the guy's half werewolf, half vampire. So, I mean, yeah, he he needs to go. But, wow. (laughs) And he did that while blind, too. (laughs) That's true. Well, apparently the entry says it's like, yeah, he's blind, but he's not. It's kind of what well, it reads. Yeah. I mean, he's blind, but he has no trouble getting around. I mean, he's like Matt Murdock. He's, he's Matt even Murdoch, got the red. Yeah. He's even got the red glasses. Yep. <laughs> yeah. He's got a cool logo too. It's very unusual. The, he does. The M and the R sort of wrap around in a curve, and then you get the E in the front part. So yeah, it's it's nice. He's a really cool looking dude. Really cool looking. Uh, next up is Mr. Element, drawn by Carmen Infantino, Craig Thigston, and again, uh, it's the pose is the standard Flash Rogues Gallery pose. Legs yep. legs spread. Arms akimbo, staring out at the at the at the viewer, uh, just presenting himself, and then in the background we see him squaring off against the Flash. Uh, and 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 uh, he's good. He had his two different identities. Um, see, he was also known as the uh, Doctor Alchemy. Yeah, be careful. It's it gets real confusing if you don't know it well. It does get well, that's true. Hold on one second. <laughs> <laughs> The only reason I get while you read, I'll fill some air here. The only reason I know this so well is because uh, this character has a weird sort of tangential relationship to Firestorm. Hit this whole thing with Doctor Alchemy and Mister Element and the insane psychic twin stuff that we talked about when we covered Doctor Alchemy a few episodes ago all occurred in an issue of Flash that had a Firestorm backup. So I read the issue, sort of blew my mind. The whole psychic twin thing is like the weirdest damn thing. And then when Mayfair Games, and, and Siskoi just woke up, uh, when Mayfair Games released the Firestorm module, um, 
the, were, were two of the main villains in the story were Dr. Alchemy and Mr. Element. And so, yeah, I get to rehash all of this stuff again in there. So it's, it's while they're not Firestorm villains, they are tangentially connected to Firestorm. All right. This is a you very confusing it. history. This is, I'm, yes, I've, is. I've read it three times, and I'm still not fully understanding what the hell I'm reading. He has a split personality. Split personality, and he has two different identities in those different personalities. Yes, I mean, at one point he was Mr. Element, and then he took on the Dr. Alchemy disguise, and they constantly were trying to eradicate the evil part of his personality. And, like, whenever they succeeded in doing it, they'd be like, oh, it's okay, you don't have to go to jail. That was that was your split personality. You're fine. Just chill, man. And then you find out he had a psychic twin, which means they're, you know, identical twins, but just through the brain. And, like, whenever one would do something evil, the other one would be counterbalancing and stuff. It was really weird. And one became Dr. Alchemy, one became Mr. Element, and they had to fight each other. It was, ooh, it was trippy. You know, I didn't notice until you started mentioning that there was, like, a house style for the Flash rogues and who's who. And now that you mentioned it, and I see it, especially in this issue because you see two of them, I love it. <laughs> I love it. A little, he, little person, touch of the it, official handbook of the Marvel Universe in there. Well, I just love that he purposefully gave a style to just the Flash characters. Now, because when Carmen Infantino drew other characters, he didn't do this. No, he didn't. You know, Matrix, well, I don't know. Let's, let's look at Matrix Prime because he did that. Is that the same pose? Oh, actually, it is the same pose. Hmm. All right, who's who readers at home? Need you to do some research. Go back and look at previous Carmen Infantino drawings. See if they are all identically posed like this, or if it's just the Flash rogues that have the house style. His Flash villain isn't. His Flash. His Flash is not posed like this. Flash is running, but of course Flash that's isn't tr- a villain. So. Yeah, that's true. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, next up, Mister Freeze in one of his doofier costumes. Uh, this was the form his action figure took, uh, the superpowers action figure that they did. Uh, he, of course, originally, he first appeared in Batman number 121, but back then, when he first appeared, he was known as Mr. Zero. Uh, it was only later on that they changed his name to Mr. Freeze. He's probably one of those guys that's, that, that benefited the most from being on the TV series, where he was played by not one, but not two, but three different actors uh, over the course of his career. Uh, he was played by, uh, uh, well, first of all, the art here is by Bob Smith, with pencils and inks. But on the Batman TV series, he was played by a uh, known asshole Otto Preminger. And then he was played by uh, a known suicidal depressed person, George Sanders. And then he was played again by known nice guy, Eli Wallach. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love the commentary. <laughs> well, that's just the way it was. But uh, I, I, he was one of my favorite villains on the Batman TV show because, I mean, they had to do, like, really kind of complicated makeup to, mm-hmm. to do it right. And it was definitely one of the more complex villains, but I always thought he was really cool. Uh, I like him in the Batman comic book. This costume, to me, is my, one of my least favorite. This feels like he looks like a Transformer or something. So it's kind of like, ugh. Well, but, he, he, he was one of the characters that was specifically redesigned for the Superpowers line. Right. Yeah, he looks it. Yeah, he looks and it. And in fact, I, I want to say, I think much like Mantis in the last issue, I think the first appearance of the new Mr. Freeze costume is right here. I think this is where it happens. Because I went back and I looked, and Mr. Freeze hadn't appeared for a little while mm. until Who's Who came out. And if the t- if you look at the timing of it, 
I got to think this is probably the premiere of his new costume right here. And it looks almost like a premiere because, I mean, it's very much a look at my costume sort yeah, of pose. Yeah, you could see this being the, the stock card on the card or something like that. You even got a doofy Luther smile on his face. Um, and in the, the, the Serp Parade, you see Batman and Robin punching the crap out of him. So I think uh, punching the crap out of Mr. Zero, actually. Mr. Zero, Mr. Zero, yeah. Now, a couple of interesting things about this. Bob Smith drawing him. Bob Smith hadn't drawn Mr. Freeze up to this point, at least hadn't penciled him. And he wouldn't again until 2001 in the Batman Gotham Adventures series, which was based on the animated series. So kind wow. of an interesting there. And they talk about how he has sort of a mysterious background. They don't know a lot about his background. And again, Batman animated series is really the people who fleshed out his background about his wife and, and all that. And, 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 you know, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I'm correct in that, that Batman and series fleshed all that, and then they adopted it all for the comics. It was like, wow, that's so good. Yes, we're using it. Yeah. So it's just just neat how the TV added to the comic, you know? Yeah, I'm sure somebody out there listening is thinking, well, you've, you've gone into extreme detail about the TV version. You're not going to mention the movie version of Mr. Freeze? No, I'm not. He was in a movie? No. No, okay. Not. Just like Superman 4, huh? Yeah. Anyway, exactly. um, you, you know what this, this redesign of his costume, you know what it reminds me of? Uh, ironically enough, it reminds me of the Doctor Doom costume redesign for Secret Wars. Uh, he was given shorts. And yeah, like that's a, right. That's right. And he had like a tunic and, and they got rid of the cape. Yeah, and they gave him a lot of techno stuff mm-hmm. on his chest plate and everything. It just it reminds me a lot of that. You know, it was very much a child of its time. Next up, one of my favorite listings in the book, Mr. Mind, drawn by Scott Shaw, exclamation point. Uh, in, in, this is another one of those entries where he thanks the uh, his predecessor. You see this little signature, and it says, thanks, mm. thanks, CC, which is meaning CC Beck. Uh, the surf print is full of fun stuff. There's Mr. Mind taking control of Captain Marvel Jr. He's flying in a little Mr. Mind buzz plane thing. We see him with the uh, Monster Society of Villains. And then we see them facing off against Captain Marvel. Uh, he first appeared as a voice in Captain Marvel Avengers number 22. And then in person in Captain Marvel Avengers number 26. Uh, he length three inches. Weight five ounces. Uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to love that. <laughs> yeah. It's a great drawing. I mean, Scott chose the perfect guy to do this. Mr. Mind is a beautifully bizarre, ridiculous looking concept. It's a talking worm. Uh, it's, it's loads of fun. It is just, I, I think this is a great drawing. The, the word I have written down in big letters and underlined, it says adorable. Yeah. <laughs> now, Scott Shaw hadn't drawn the character before, but you're right. He was perfect for this. Now, there's some interesting stuff in here about, like, um, there's actually some really weird stuff in here. Yeah, a lot Talks of history, too. Fought, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, the history, where he fought the JSA first before he fought Captain Marvel. That has to be the All Star Squadron retcon. I yes. gotta say, yes, because sure. he was not a yeah, because he was a yeah. Captain Marvel character for it. But then it says he was put to the electric chair, <laughs> <laughs> which is the little tiny worm. The idea of killing, you know, executing him just cracks me up. <laughs> and uh, I like he he got a, a what do you call it a, a, a tagline or a, a subtitle in, in caps. You get world's wickedest worms. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> now the only other thing, I just a, a you know I like focusing on weird you know stuff. Um, in the first appearances, 
It's the only ever t- time I've seen a series abbreviated. Yes, they do because they just, they put it as CMA as opposed to writing it all out again. Yeah. Right. So he appeared in Captain Marvel Adventures twenty two as a voice, and then in uh, Country Music Awards number twenty six. <laughs> so, so and it's it's fun. It's neat. And um, there was something else I was going to say about it, and I've forgotten now. I love his little hat. <laughs> what am I he's got a little. He's got a little like comment on hat on there. One of my favorite bits with Mister Mind was in the. Um, the mid-80s Captain Marvel Shazam miniseries by Roy Thomas and Tom Mandrake, which was not that well-received because it was kind of a dark take, and it wasn't that really... I don't think it, it, people really liked it all that much, but the great bit was, I mean, basically Captain Marvel fights Savannah through all four issues, and in the final issue, Savannah is sort of destitute and depressed that he didn't defeat Captain Marvel, and he's in a bar drinking tequila, Oh and he's, he's sitting there, and he goes, "You know, I'm next time I'm I go after Captain Marvel. I'm not going to do it alone. What I need is a good partner." And there's a close up of the worm in the bottom of the bottle, and I'm like, "What a great gag!" I was like, "That, was that so, is awesome." It's such a great. They never he never Roy Thomas ever going to do anything with it, but I never forgot. That was my favorite bit out of the whole four issues. Was that that's Mr. funny? Mister Mind will be the worm out of the bottle. Of the bottle. <laughs> great. Hey, check out that logo. It's wonderful. He and, yes, Mr. Mind is forming the eye of his own logo. It's, nice. it's great. It's a great listing. It's really super. And then if you like Mr. Mind, you got more of him. Because yeah, follow, you do. Following is a two-page spread, Mr. Mind's Monster Society of Evil, drawn by Dave Gibbons, of all people. Uh, this team is chock-a-block with incredibly bizarre-looking dudes. Yeah, um, I mean, you've got some real winners here. You've got Black Adam, who was one of my favorites, Savannah, um, Ibac, King Cull, but then you and Captain Nazi and Mister Mind, and then you've got some real zeros uh, like uh, Um, Auger. It's a lot of weird names in here. Uh, Mister Who, and of course, everyone's favorite punching bag, Mister Banjo. <laughs> don't don't get me started, that bastard. <laughs> who, of course. Made his live-action quasi-debut in the Robot Chicken special from last year. Remember um, him and Firestorm went at it. There's also Goat Man, uh, Evil Eye, and Crocodile Man. So, you know, and Crocodile Man is basically a guy in a crocodile wearing a suit. Well, it's several of them. Several, several Crocodile Man. It's a race, race of them, yeah. Uh, and then there's a, a sort of a rat guy named Jeepers. So this is... You, you didn't mention the most uh, culturally respectable one, um... The Japanese guy named uh, Nippo. I purposely left him out. Yeah. With the giant uh, propaganda poster teeth. Yeah. Uh, it's really embarrassing. Yeah, and they even talk about it here. It's like, um, that's clearly a nickname. You know, it's like they're <laughs> trying to back away from that as far as fast as they can. Now, Ibac, I didn't, I, I've seen Ibac a bunch, but I've never really paid attention to him. You know, it's like, it's like put a shirt on, man. Anyway, um, I didn't realize that Ibac is an acronym, just like Shazam is. Right, right, right. So I was like, that's pretty cool. And then Ogar apparently was a herald of Shazam at some point. In fact, he was Shazamo at one point. How and, and, and Black Adam has his own Shazam acronym as well. Like Shazam means something different for him than it does for Captain Marvel. Right. It's like, wow, I didn't know all this stuff. Now Captain Black Marvel or Black Adam looks really weird here. I gotta assume that's what he looked like back in the day. Yeah. What do you mean? What does he look how does he look weird? I don't know. Look at his face. It's just all weird. I don't know. I guess I'm used to him looking more like Namor, you know, 
Okay, well, at least he's got the pointy ears and stuff. I mean, J- Dave Gibbons, I think this must have been one that he requested. Probably. It feels I mean, he, like that. He, he had a real good knack for drawing modern day and also drawing golden age stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. If you look in here, you've got, you know, like Captain Nazi looks pretty contemporary right next to, God, I don't even know what the hell that thing is. Yeah, Evil Eye looks ridiculously cartoony, like right next to each other. So clearly, he had a, you know that that range. This team clearly let anybody join. You just had to hate Captain Marvel, and they were like, "Yeah, come on in." <laughs> I think it's more like, "Have you heard of Captain Marvel? You're on the team." <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fun listening. Mister Mind is in the background, radiating his thoughts and telling them all, presumably commanding them and stuff. It's it's a really fun drawing, but yeah, don't don't stare at the characters for too long. Yep. Uh, next up is our marquee hero, Mr. Miracle, drawn by Jack Kirby and Dick Giordano this time. Uh, nice drawing of him on his little hollow discs f- flying through the air there uh, to get the classic logo and a ton of his personal history crammed into the surprint in the background there. Top notch, this drawing. This is one of my favorite Kirby drawings in the series. I love this one. You don't have to agree with me. I can tell by your silence. No, no, no. Uh, no, that's not true. I like it. No, I like it. Okay. I am just in love with this entry. Uh, the purple is really striking. Mr. Miracles, you know, motion is dynamic action. The stuff in that background, I am in love with this drawing. So, mm. some funny stuff in the uh, in the entry here. Like, you know, his base of operations is Supertown, which is always funny, and America. <laughs> like, all your bases belong to us, kind of, you know, <laughs> sort of thing there. And, uh, and then... It, Oddly enough, under powers of weapons, despite previous accounts, Mr. Miracle has no known superpowers. That tells me that perhaps during that, like, late 70s, you know, New God series that Jack Kirby had nothing to do with, that maybe someone got a little creative there, and they're trying to yeah, back it, yeah, back, you know, or something. That's the, my guess. The only thing about this is, and it lists the height and weight, it says height 6 feet, weight 185 pounds, which is fairly slender, but it's not super thin. The one thing that always bugged me about the Mr. Miracle superpowers figure is that he's, like, oh, yeah. barrel-chested. Right. And to me, Mr. Miracle, of all the superheroes, should be particularly small and thin because he's a master of escapes. Yep. So, to me, he should be wiry and tiny, not big and muscular. And Kirby here draws him as pretty pretty beefy. Um, that's, like, my only beef with uh, – I hate to say the word beef twice in the same sentence. Uh, my only uh, problem with, with that is that I, I feel like physically it would make more sense for him to be smaller. And then you even have – if he was tinier, you'd have more of a contrast with his gigando wife, Big Barda. Yeah, yeah. You know. uh, little man, big wife. Uh, or little man, big mama. Well, she's not big mama. But she's just broad. Um, I think my favorite iteration – even though I love the Kirby stuff, don't get me wrong. But I think my favorite look – for Mr. Miracle was he had his own ongoing series in the 80s around the contemporary time of the JLI book. Right. Man, I want to say Phillips. The name Phillips comes to mind? Like a last name? Man, I'm really reaching here. I don't know. Someone could probably tell me. Anyway, I loved the way he looked in that book. He was, like you said, he was very, very thin. Not emaciated, but he was a very skinny dude. You know, he was like David Tennant skinny. And uh, it just worked well for the character. Had to get that Doctor Who reference in there, so. But you, you, I did get a Doctor Who reference. There. Did I? Have I mentioned yet what tomorrow is? No. I haven't, have I? No. Okay, because I'm always thinking about it. So I like I don't stop thinking about it. Uh, sorry, just to pull back the curtain, we're recording this on. Oh my God! It's oh 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 oh! It just happened. All right. <laughs> sorry. 
Rob and I are recording. We started recording on the evening of November 22nd. Okay? It is now 12.01 p.m. So, therefore, it is now... A.M. Thank you. It is now November 23rd, 2013. It is now one minute into the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Woo! I can't yell too loud or I'll wake up my kids. But I would yell right now because I'm so excited. I... It is. It is completely reconsumed me. My passion for Doctor Who right now. I'm so excited. And by the time this episode goes live, everyone will have already seen the 50th anniversary episode. And I don't care if it sucks or not. I'm so excited about the 50th anniversary, though, and the celebration, and all the hype, and all the specials, and the comics, and the books, and the toy. Oh my gosh! And the audios. Ah. <sighs> I had a moment. Sorry. I'm better now. All right, you ready to rejoin the podcast? I suppose. Okay. All right, we're almost done. Uh, next up is a double listing, both the Mr. Mixes Pitalix, the Golden Age one from Superman number 30, and then the Silver Age one from Superman number 131. It's not, a much of, not as much of a time difference as you might expect. It's really only 100 issues, so you're talking like eight years. Not that big of a deal. Um, both drawn by Marshall Rogers. Uh, a lot of fun. Marshall Rogers clearly had, had, you know, enjoyed drawing these sort of cartoony characters. Um, I was never a huge fan of Mr. Mixus Pitalik. I just found him annoying. He was, to me, never done better than in the Superman animated series. That episode. <laughs> the, yeah, the one when he was voiced by Gilbert Gottfried. That is friggin' genius. Uh, <laughs> that was really funny. Uh, yeah, I just never. I, they never did him any better than that. So now he, he looked. He looks more like the classic. Yeah, one he looks like the series. Golden Age one. Yeah, he looks like a you know an old timey comedian with a little derby hat as opposed to the, um, the, the the second one, which is the more famous version and the one that got turned into the Mego doll and. Super and, Friends. And Super Friends and everything else, yeah. So. Now, I'm going to challenge you. By the way, just so you know, when, when we started out the Who's Who podcast seven years ago, Rob and I <laughs> sat down and figured out who was doing which issues. And <laughs> I've never said this now, but I'll tell you right now. I purposefully made sure he got this issue because I can't say this little imp's name to Mix, save my life. Mix says Pitalik. Now, I'm going to challenge you because take a co- closer look at those names. You just pronounced the Silver Age version. Mixes Pitalik. The Golden Age, the letters are a little different. That's true. Mi- it's Mixes Tiplik. Again, this is why I want Rob to do this, because to me, he's Mitzelplik from the Super Friends. Yeah. It's Mitzelplik, is how I say it. I can't say Mixes Pitalik or whatever, how you and, and, and uh, Daniel Cynical Adams are capable of doing. I can't do that. So, um, but anyway. It's funny. He says Mixelplik in the Power Records. That's how he pronounced. That's how Superman pronounces in the Power Records. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he'd been uh, probably had been around in the Super Friends by then, don't you think? Yeah. 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 So, cute entries. I love them. They're and it shows the range of Marshall Rogers drawing both mm-hmm. of them. Just really fun. I didn't realize the first one was a court jester. I guess I never knew that. No, me neither. So. Uh. And there's all these other magic power words, you know. I like how they gave them two distinctly separate entries rather than try to cram it into one entry, mm-hmm. you know? It's a it, it's a nice creative way to do a, a split page entry, but it all works seamlessly. Yeah, and in the Serpent we see the various lengths Superman has had to go to to get Mix says Pitalik or Mix this Pitalik or whatever to say things backwards. He's got his uh, alphabet soup, <laughs> and then he's doing the eye chart, that whole trick, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's I know. I love how he's drawn the Golden Age Superman. He's given him the white temples. Mm-hmm. 
you know, as if he's old already. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's a fun drawing. Marshall Rogers clearly had a, a good a good time with these uh, listings. Yep. And then the last one in the book, Mister Talkie Tawny, from Captain Marvel Avengers number seventy nine, drawn by Kurt Schaffenberger. Now, some we'll get to this in the listener feedback, but a lot of you took us to task for going after the Marvel family the way we did. Yeah, in the previous I, I viciously went after the Marvel family. In the family. previous, yeah, I didn't think it was as bad as they made it out to be. But uh, So I'm not going to say anything bad about Mr. Talkie Tawny. This is one of these characters you either just accept or you don't. Uh, you can't, you, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a giant human-sized tiger. It's anthropomorphic tiger. Anthropomorphic tiger who wears a suit and a hat and a cane. And in the background, we see him skating and in his little detective outfit. You either just completely buy into this concept or you really just shouldn't be bothering with Captain Marvel. I always like Mr. Talkie Tawny. I always thought it was a lot of fun. Um, and one of my favorite bits is a little nod to him in the Alex Ross, Paul Dini oversized book, The Shazam uh, Power of Hope. Mm-hmm. Did you read those? I did. Okay. And, I mean, those are obviously meant to be hyper-realistic because they're drawn by Alex Ross. But there's a page in it where they do, like, a montage of all the different things Captain Marvel's doing, like, in that day. And it talks about visiting old friends. And there's a close-up shot of him talking to a tiger. <laughs> and the way the page – the way the panel is structured, you can't see below the tiger's neck. So you can't tell if he's just a tiger or if it's a tiger wearing a suit. <laughs> but it's clearly meant to be talky tawny, and I thought that was such a n- sweet little nod in the middle of this very sort of hyper realistic story that they still found room for Mister Talky Tawny. So uh, I-, I enjoy this. I think it's it's really cute, and it's it's a lot of fun. I will say, um, you know, I, as we said, I took the, them to task on the on the Marvel family, but as you said, talky tawny is sort of a divisive character that you either accept or you don't. And as far as I'm concerned, you just have to accept him. There is no, you do not accept him. He, he's just that awesome. I love this character. I truly, truly do. He is adorable. He's great. I, he's just, he should exist. There's no question of whether he should or not. Now, I will say, I'm warning you guys, the first, and I'm going to curse, the first asshole that makes a furry joke about Talkie Tawny, they're off the podcast, okay? I'm just saying, you don't go there with the, with the childhood, you know, something this beloved. I mean, it's, this is, it's not broaching Calvin and Hobbes level, but there's some tiger connection there. You just, you just don't mess with certain things. Anyway, um, now I do want to take a couple, couple seconds to talk about something here. First of all, uh, I love how in the entry it says his name was just Tawny, and then he, Captain Marvel helped him run a contest to pick a name. And the kids voted for Talky Tony, and so he kept it. I wonder if that was a contest in real life, or if huh, that was just I in the comic. I think about that. You're right. That's, I, I wonder. That would be good. Um, and, and maybe this should be more in the comments, but I, I think it's just it's fair to say it real quickly. But like, I even found myself questioning why do I have such a problem with hillbilly Marvel, <laughs> fat Marvel, and tall Marvel, and yet. Like I blindly, right? I blindly and willingly accept Mr. Mind, Talky Tawny, and Hoppy the, the 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 Marvel Bunny. Now I said one nasty thing about Hoppy the Marvel Bunny last time. That was re- I was really going for a gag on that. I have no problems with Hoppy the Marvel Bunny actually <laughs> at all. Why do I blindly accept the anthropomorphic characters, but I won't accept the human ones? I don't know that I have a good answer for that. <laughs> uh, I even I even like Dudley. You know, I, I don't, it's um. It's something childlike and wonder-like about the anthropomorphic characters like this that just make them so 
part of the Marvel the Marvel family that I just purely accept them. I guess I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I know I should have saved that for comments. No, but anyway. Sorry. So anyway, that, right. that, that, La- that last page. Yes. I know you don't have it, so I'll talk about All it. Right. Uh, you got six wonderful covers here: Tales of the uh, Tales of the Teen Titans '65, um, Cha- DC Challenge, which is great. It's got the Joker on the cover. It's written in Orion and Batman. This looks awesome. Blackhawk, Enemy Ace, Fury of Firestorm number forty-seven. It's that Blue Devil Firestorm team up that should have been all full of wind, but was not. Uh, Amazing Man or Amazing Man, sorry, number five. Really funny covers. It's writer's block, and somebody's being hit with it, which is funny. Uh, you've got a cover to Aquaman number four, the miniseries, this gorgeous um, Why Am I Blanking artist, please. Craig Hamilton. Thank you. Good Lord, I can't believe I blanked on that. Great cover from Aquaman number four. You know, it's the one with Ocean Master's mask in the background and, and Aquaman on the star. Great Looks series. Great. great series. Really nice action comics cover. I assume this is a Keith Giffen cover. It's funny. It's, it's this little guy. Anyway, it's just a fun cover. Just leave it at that. Action Comics 579. But you get um, several re- – the only, the only real text thing worth mentioning is there's several references here to the upcoming Superpowers miniseries. Like really, they were clearly getting excited about it. However, I want to say this was the third series, which is not remembered fondly at all. No. <laughs> so, no it's so it's the one they're getting excited about. So anyway, and that's that would be that. There. Now we're done with the issue. Wow. Whew. Okay, fun stuff. Wow, massive issue. We took a lot of time to talk about this one. We gave it a lot of breathing room. But you know what? It was fun. I enjoy it. Hey, you got to give Mr. Ducky Tony his due, you know? You, you do. You do. All right. All right, feedback. we're going to go jump right into feedback. Yes. Shag, do you want to go first? Sure. And you're going to have to help me out here because you've done a little more research on this than me. We got uh, – someone pointed out to us. <laughs> uh, I apologize. I, I don't have the – credit of who pointed me in the direction of this right now, but the original George Perez artwork for the cover of Who's Who Number One featuring Aquaman was on eBay recently. The yes, it was. original artwork. Yep. How much was it, were they trying to sell it I for? I think they were like five grand, I think. I just posted it the other day on the Shrine, but yeah, they didn't get any takers. Man. I, mm, I, man, that piece looked nice. Hey, hey, if I, if I was a millionaire, I would have bought it. I would have bought it. Hell to the, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, got an email from Andrew. Well, actually, you know, I didn't know whether these are emails or comments, so I apologize. Got a, got something for Andrew Kolbeck. Says, hey, guys, this is my first chance I've had to write into the podcast, though I've listened since the beginning of the show, and uh, both Fire and Water and Husu. Listening to this episode and the discussion on Crisis on Captive Earth, I thought I'd share a little on this book. I thought I'd always had com- – though I've always had comics in my life since I was a small child in the 70s. Uh, I didn't really start collecting comics until 1985 when some new kids started going to my grade school and introduced me to comics on an ongoing obsession. I would spend whatever money I could weasel out of my mom on comics, riding my bike to a grocery store or convenience store to find my fix, as his widely known distribution was always spotty at the newsstands, so I would pick up whatever grabbed me when I was out to find new issues. Though I don't recall the issue I found it in, I came across the survey you guys were discussing, with the promise of a free comic once completing the survey and returning it. I don't remember how long it took to get the book, but eventually I received the envelope in the mail from DC Comics. I could tell it was a comic, but which one? Opening the envelope, I found a letter in the first issue of the Legends miniseries. I don't recall the entire contents of the letter, but I remembered it thanked me for completing the survey, and that the name of the series previously listed as Crisis 2 had been changed to Legends. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, it's, it's sort of quaint, like they're still doing these old surveys, you know, and you get a free comic book. It's like, 
that cost them nothing to send out. You know, <laughs> it costs absolutely nothing. And you get all this, you know, direct marketing stuff. That's, that's the kind of stuff Facebook does now with all their data grabbing. But back then, you had to do it over the mail and for the cost of a free comic book. So. Yep. Uh, we got a comment from Jeff R. He says, I have to wonder exactly what the authors meant by editorializing so-called before mentioning the crisis in infinite earths. Are they suggesting that there was only a large, finite number of actual earths involved or that it was all swamp gas and hallucinations? <laughs> Egregious omission of the month, the mad mod witch. That's an obscure one, Jeff, and I agree with you. Wow. <laughs> I got to wonder, maybe what they mean by so-called crisis is that um – you know, it, we're now in the post-crisis universe, so why would there be infinite Earths? You know, I guess so. I guess they're. Maybe, I, I don't know. I think they're more referring to it as that is what the characters refer to it as, as opposed to it being an actual historical event. Uh, you know, like, like I mean, World War II. yeah, Something. World War Two, right? But I mean, you know, I guess in the history books, nobody's really known what this is just yet. It was just a bunch of crazy shit where the skies got red and a bunch of people died. <laughs> uh, we heard from Boston Moss. Uh, quick thing on Magnetic Lad. It says, uh, he was part of the most recent group of Legion candidates that made it into the Legion, and the tales tended to center around the newbies for a while. But since two of the five were promoted from supporting characters, Magnetic Kid and Polar Boy, and of course the whole Sensor Girl mystery was a major arc in that book. Uh, it talks a little about Malad, Malad, I said Malad Gigi, but I guess it's Malad Gigi? I don't know. Uh, he might look like Dom DeLuise, but he was a formidable wizard who literally consorted with demons. And he was old and fat and constantly underestimated. <laughs> Uh, he mentions Manhunter. He says, uh, you, meaning me, Rob, mentioned that the injury assumed that Manhunter's dog Thor was long dead. He didn't mention the retcon effect on Thor, that the dog's actually a robot spy working for the Manhunters. Oh, oh God. And then he ends it with, see the Millennium Series. See, that's the exact reason why I'm not going to do that, Boston. <laughs> you, <get> you know, <laughs> so much bad came out of the Millennium good Series. There's some, there's some good. My there is some good. Goodness. And there's some good crossovers, but God. Oh, just that idea by itself. Just come on. Now, he says one quick thing about the Marvel family here. He says, well, if Little Boy Blue rated an entry, he's talking about Hillbilly Marvel, Fat Marvel, and Tall Marvel. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about them a lot tonight. Anyway, these guys, uh, if Little Boy Blue, Blue rated an entry, this guy, these guys deserve to have one too. But other than that, I can't argue with much of what you guys said. Now, see, he's in our court. He's the- <laughs> <laughs> not, not a lot of people are, for the record. He's anti Hillbilly like we are. Uh, we, got, we, got a, we got an email from Alex G. Bowman, a.k.a. Lord Worm, and he wrote, uh, he wrote, check it, Rob, give you a little background on this listener who doesn't have Facebook. He wrote his uh, profile in the style of Who's Who page. Yes, so he his, did. his uh, real name, Alex G. Bowman, alter egos, the worm, crotch horn, Lord Worm, <laughs> oh, yeah, Lord Worm, occupation, case manager, marital status, married, known relatives, too many to list, group affiliations, the funky foursome. Reference, and then he has a link to his DVRN page. Base of Operations, Bowling Green, Kentucky. First appearance, DJ Samson Hospital, 1978. That's hilarious. That was a great touch. Height, 6 feet, weight 190. Eyes, green, hair, invisible. That cracked me up. (laughs) I have never listened to a podcast. I discovered the who's who while being broken down by two like-minded dudes. Instant for his podcast. Listen, hooked. After I finish, I plan on diving into your other podcasts on a regular basis as time allows. I am 35. My first experience with the series, a shag request, is as follows. I grew up in a small town called Glasgow, Kentucky. That's dead center between Louisville and Nashville, not too far from the House of Mystery. I would beg my mother to accompany her to the grocery store for one reason only, the spinner rack. I wasn't a kid who got whatever he wanted whenever, but my mother would definitely spend a buck or two on me once a week. 
I don't remember which issue I saw first, perhaps the Green Lantern Corps, Joker, or Dr. Fate issues, as they lost their covers first, but I digress. I was seven and already amassed a collection from these weekly trips, old books from my uncle's collection, Deathlock, Road War Tales, I Spy, World's Finest, watched the cartoons, and received action figures on my birthdays. But this opened up the entire universe to my tiny eyeballs. The rest is history. I will just tell you I don't need to look at the issues by listening as each cover and entry have been burned willingly into my memory. <laughs> and then he gave us a very detailed breakdown of comments on like virtually every character of the first three issues of Who's Who. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to cover some of these real quick. Okay, uh, yeah, go ahead. This is now on to the rambles. Keep in mind I will be aggressive about the characters I love, but it's all in good fun. I never and this is why I like I like this bit. I never ever get to geek rant like this to anyone who knows what the hell I'm talking about, much less anyone who actually read Who's Who. And let me tell you that's part of the joy of this podcast, man, one is that we us, get to do this together. What's that? One of us. One of <laughs> us. <laughs> but, like, in my real life, I, I have a certain group of friends, but there's a lot of stuff that, I, that I'm that i into that I don't have real-world friends that I can talk to about. So it's, like, it's nice that we've all found each other through this. Okay. He comes at us about, uh, he, as, as Rob said, he mentions a lot of characters one by one. But he comes at us about Bug-Eyed Bandit. Here we go. How dare you? How dare you? I don't even know what to say here. Okay, I totally get it, and Shag did toss him into the category of villains that might show up in the villain's bar scene backgrounds. But man, there's an entire cadre, yes, intended, of these mucho mocked characters representing the, the, the run, goofiness, and charm of the DCU, and there are those of us who still love them. Besides, you make light of him going up against the Atom, but I bet neither of you would have the guts but to face him one-on-one. <laughs> I, I, I'd walk away laughing, dude. Anyway, um, Big Sir. I noticed, as with Cluemaster and Clock King, not one mention of their stint in, the, in Justice League or Justice League Antarctica. That absolutely most, the absolute most hilarious, in my hum, humble opinion, storylines in the DCU. Now, I mentioned that here. Um, it says, I hope you bring them up when you get to Major Disaster and Multiman. That came up a lot in regard to Major Disaster on how we didn't touch on Justice League Antarctica. And you know what? I apologize for that. Because I'm a big JLI fan, and I loved all the Injustice League and Justice League Antarctica nonsense and stuff with those characters. It was a total hoot. Absolutely loved it. And I'm, I'm saddened that I failed to bring that up. I'm kind of surprised. So, there you have Um This is something. I don't know. Have you heard of this, Rob? Have you heard of Engine Head? No. I gotta, this is really interesting. It says it's a very funky series where the minds of Jackhammer, who's brother of the other two Jackhammers, Brainstorm, Rosie Riveter from the Demolition Team, Dr. Cyber, Auto Man, Emil Hamilton, and the Electrocutioner are all merged into a gigantic robot body. The story also includes the Human Bomb, the First Vigilante, Mr. Bones, the Metal Men, Floronic Man, Metallo, and a cameo of the major players at the end. Tell me this does not make you curious. Okay, you're right, dude. It totally makes me curious. What the heck? I seem to remember maybe some artwork on it. Like, maybe it was almost like a Ted McKeever kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, I need to know more. Uh, he comes at us about the Creeper. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't like that we didn't. We, weren't, we were less enthusiastic about the Creeper. I can't read this entire Creeper rant because it's like Diablo flank, Frank length, but I'll just give you a highlight here. Jack Ryder, you guys broke my heart on this one. Easily in my top ten favorites, along with Plastic Man, Elongated Man, and Metamorpho. There's a really weird sort of pattern there if you just think about those characters for a while, man. Anyway, I was so geekily excited to hear this review. I almost stopped listening. So very, very sad. I can't fault you, as I understand, just not getting into the character. I understand just not enjoying a certain writer or artist, but he is the last character I expect you to dismiss offhand. And so quickly at that. Wow. Devastated my inner geek there, brothers. 
in our um, in our defense, though, about Creeper, I would suggest uh, that you go back and listen to episode what is it? Episode seventeen of the Fire and Water podcast, where we talk about the superpowers collection. And I think <laughs> Shag and I, Shag and I, really, really get excited over the notion that there was maybe going to be a Creeper superpowers figure. Only because it was so friggin' weird. Right. But I mean, you know, we were enthusiastic about it. It wasn't like we were running the creeper down then. So I, yeah. I would just say go back and, and listen to that, and maybe you'll change your opinion about how we think about the creeper. There you go. Uh, and uh, he gives us PSSSS. I love the podcast. Keep it up. No matter how much you hurt me, I'll keep coming back. I'm addicted to abusive relationships, I suppose. Speaking of abusive relationships, any plan to give the world a similar review of the official handbooks of the Marvel Universe? No. I know DC's your bag, but it would be fascinating. No. No. Uh, <laughs> we oh, are. Uh, another one. I, you, you're, you're not on this, so I'll get this one. Uh, can a, can they... Well, wait. Hold on a second. We wanted to give Alex... Oh, we're going to do it now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's do it do now it. while we're doing it. We're giving Alex the Yellow Dot Award. We haven't really... <gasps> yes. It's, we haven't. We don't think we give it out every episode, but we do give it out occasionally for uh, particularly uh, trenchant comments or something really, really good. And Alex, we loved your your letter in the form of the Who's Who column and all the stories and, and all the kind words. So you are the recipient of the Yellow Dot Award for this month. So uh, enjoy it, even though it's not tangible. <laughs> it's a pixel. It's a pixel, yes. <laughs> in fact, we, we need to... We, we have a pixel. Uh, I think Siskoid gave us Yeah, that's so. right. We have that one yellow dot thing. So, yes. Really. Yep. Uh, got, a, got a message from D, a.k.a. Candycom. Corn. I guess. Is it corn? Yeah, candy corn. See, I have an Oh, I, I, maybe I mistyped it. Okay, anyway. Uh, he just says, it's too bad Master Jailer and Lockup never got to team up. I don't know who Lockup is. No, me neither. <laughs> I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> Sorry, brother. <laughs> that awful okay. Sylvester Stallone movie. Uh, That's we, what it was. Yeah. Uh, we got an email from Tim Wallace. Listening to this episode, I found myself thinking the world needs more Mike Kaluta books. I agree with that entirely, Tim. Dude, you should preach it, brother. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, got a comment from someone who's just identified as The Flash. Um, dude, write back in again. Let us know who you are because uh, it says it's a wonderful coincidence that you came out with a new episode today. I just got every issue in the mail from eBay. I'm going to go back and listen to every episode and follow along with the books. I'd love to hear your commentaries, man. Uh, I just don't know who you are unless you are actually The Flash, which would be pretty cool. Heard from uh, Bert Bernard. Bar- Bert Barnard. Um, Bert, I'd like to thank you for all your nice comments about my Phantom Stranger blog. However, <laughs> it's actually Rob's. So, anyway, uh, he did say, keep up the great work on the Who's Who podcast. I was a teenager when they first came out and collected all of them, including the Legion of Superheroes version. Version. <laughs> heard from, that was not a Freudian slip. Anyway, I heard from Tom Zoller in defense of Lieutenant Marvels. This is where the, the, the Marvel stuff starts, folks. Just in case you didn't listen to last episode, there was a Marvel family paying. I went off the rails and went after the Lieutenant Marvels of Fat Marvel, Hillbilly Marvel, and Tall Marvel. And uh, most of the commons were pretty much not agreeing with us. <laughs> so here we go. We take our, we take our licks here. Tom Zoller himself, the man from uh, who draws and writes Loving Caves. Uh, in defense of Lieutenant Marvels, guys, I'm sure you're getting a lot of these. Here are my thoughts on the matter. One. Of course Lieutenant Marvels take up a lot of the room in the Marvel family entry. They've got nowhere else to go. Captain Marvel Jr. and Mary Marvel all have a whole page to themselves to brag about what they did. These guys didn't, and obviously they didn't warn their own entry, did they? Number two, but here's the big thing. They're silly, I admit. They made only one original DC appearance that I can think of, but I think the, 
But I think the thing they point out is how easily it is just to ignore the goofy. When they did issues after, no one asked where they were. They were just left to be forgotten, except, of course, in the expanse of who's who. But I think of Robin in the 80s, killed off for no reason other than to make Batman a solo character again, when they could have sent him away to school or just rotated him out. Comic fans would have filled the gaps. The thing about current comics that bother me is the insistence of rebooting and cleaning, when honestly you can just compress and forget. Batman has fought the Joker enough times to fill a calendar, but the only appearances that are important are the ones the story you're reading references. We self-edit and look back at the past. I'm sorry, we look, yeah, look past the parts that don't work and without a company-wide reboot. Likewise, the craziness that was Lieutenant Marvel's deserved to be mentioned and did more than a few others, it just for the completest sake, and then promptly ignored by a modern audience. Thanks for doing the show. You know, he makes a fair point. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think you need, like, to formally be like, all right, we're starting over. Just forget it. Just just forget the stuff and move on. You know, it's it, uh, my good buddy Ravenface made an analogy once about Star Wars fans and Star Trek fans, and it fits here, so it, it ta- it'll take a second, but follow me. Star Wars fans lose their mind, and I, I am one of them, so I'm talking about myself too, lose their mind trying to make every piece of Star Wars fit in canon, no matter what it is. The Christmas special, the <laughs> The Ewok Adventure TV movie, whatever. They go to the comics. They try and make every single piece fit in continuity. And when the prequels came out, their heads just exploded. They couldn't take it right, anymore. Right, because you can't – right, because Lucas didn't bother to make right. that effort. And so Star Wars fans are like that. And that's sort of what Tom's saying is, is, is comic industry is like that a bit. Whereas Star Trek fans, they've, they're surprisingly a lot more laid back about it. There is so much Star Trek expanded fiction out there. That people just pick and choose what they want to accept as canon. It's like, you don't like the books? Fine, screw them. I don't mind paying attention to that. You know, I'm not. I don't care about how for how much just for the planet, whatever. Or you don't like the comics, but you like the books. Well, forget the comics. Who cares? You know, they just they pick and choose what they like to remember and care about. They're very good about that. It's, it's surprisingly so. It's like William Shatner wrote a whole series of books about how Kirk came back from the dead. Oh God, yeah. Nobody cares except for him. Well, <laughs> but I shouldn't say nobody cares. I mean, a lot, they sold a lot of copies. But if you don't, if you're not into it, it's just not part of the Star Trek mm-hmm. world for you. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. anyway. They have a much more free flowing atmosphere, kind of like what Tom's talking about. Okay. Sorry, I kind of went on about a lot about that, but right. made right. made some good points. J. David Weeder took us to tax task also. Yeah, uh, about the. Um, well, I do want to ask before you jump into that. He said, "Have you ever read any Golden Age Captain Marvel Junior?" Hmm. His stories were darker and fairly sharp contrast to the Elder Marvel tales. That's very interesting. Yeah, would... they were drawn by Mac Reb- Mac Raboy or Mac Raboy. I don't know how you say his name, but yeah, they. If you ever look at those covers, they are a little more. They are of like a darker tone. Certainly. Hmm. Yep. All right. Beautifully drawn. Uh, he mentions. <laughs> he goes after me here. He says, "I've been listening to the show for a long time and reading the Aquaman Shrine, and the time has come to throw down the gauntlet and all the Captain Marvel bashing that occurs." Rob, you know I respect you, but let it go. Captain Marvel and the Marvel family were effectively erased from existence in a lawsuit that left most of the former Fawcett writers and artists in a state where they were afraid to even utter a word about the Marvel family. He fell into obscurity as Aquaman enjoyed continuous publication through the Silver Age. Yes, he's had some chances to appear on marketing, in some cases in place of Aquaman, but by that logic, Zatanna would be guilty of replacing the Sea King and Justice League Task Force. Sure, Aquaman has had a lot of cancellations, but he's had more chances at an ongoing than Cap had. What is worse, losing a book or never having it? I totally agree. I, I actually really like Captain Marvel. I always have. I love the TV series. 
Uh, I, I bought, I think I bought like every version of the character in some form or another. So my whole grudge against Shazam, it's really meant to be like hyperbole. You know, it's meant to be like purposely overstatement uh, for no good reason. So I really don't hate Captain Marvel. In fact, I like him quite a bit. So so don't worry, guys. And also, I think a, I think a lot of the guys that took us to task for, for the, the hillbilly Marvel bashing and whatever is they were suggesting that we were saying they don't belong in Who's Who, which I don't think we said. I think we. Mm. I think we. Just, I, think I don't we, know. I, I think I, we just I, made fun I of the characters. I, I lost think, my mind quite a bit, so I may have. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't think we ever said they shouldn't be in the book. I think we just made fun of them. That's different. Well, you made a good suggestion that they should have been in the background. Yeah, I don't think. I, so. Right, I think putting them as prominent. But but considering but that t- Captain Marvel got his own entry and stuff, that's fair. So yeah. Now I do want to say, you know, because a lot of people kind of like thought I hated Captain Marvel because of it. No, I, I'm just not a fan of some of the Silver Age goofiness. Uh, I I didn't – I really am obviously passionately about Hillbilly and Fat and all that, and that bothers me. But <laughs> in general, the, the, the Captain Marvel Silver Age stuff doesn't appeal to me, but I don't discredit it either. It's just not for me. Now, when you get into the Bronze Age and certainly the modern era, I'm alls about it. In fact, here – Going into J. David Weeder's letter again, he goes, I think all three of us can agree that Jerry the Extraordinary's Ordway's Power Shazam was probably the most perfectly distilled, thought out, and developed iteration of the concept. I agree with that. That book walked the thin wire between the camp of the Golden Age and sensibilities of a continuity-heavy 90s comic. Easily one of the better books in the 1990s. Ordway, the Extraordinary, truly made the book... Uh, that made a book that was far better than its sales made it appear. If there are fans who are on the fence about Captain Marvel and the gang, I would point them to Power Shazam because it communicates clearly the purity of the idea. And uh, now, i got to say, David, uh, not, true, not a truer word's been uttered. That was dead on. Great series. Really, really, really good series. Will make you love Captain Marvel and the Marvel family. Really does. Such a good book. Did you read any of that? I did. I read some of it. I want to go. I only read little bits and pieces. I want to like see if it's collected and go back and buy it because I, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I love Ordway. I love Captain Marvel. So I, yeah, I'm not sure why I didn't get it at the time. It might have been at a point where I was buying very few comics and it just wasn't on my radar. But every time mm-hmm. I saw it, it looked great. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's Ordway. Um, you know? <laughs> I mean, of course. It does. Heard from our buddy Philemon. Um, this is on a, the previous issue beforehand of, I guess, number 13, but just a couple of things worth mentioning. Uh, Little Cheese shares the spotlight with Lightning Lad and Lois Lane on the cover. So what does that say about him? <laughs> I like that. That's a good note. That's a good point. And then he says, can Laurel Kent be a candidate for hottest legionnaire? I'd say I that, change- yeah. Uh, sure. And she's pretty much naked except for a cape. Um, I might change my vote there. There you go. Sean Corey came back and said, Jeff Johns did indeed bump off Little Cheese. Scott Shaw had planned to bring him back as Dead Mouse, but DC never gave him the chance. Uh, let's see. Then we heard from Philemon about the, the most recent episode. Another great podcast, gentlemen, despite the unwarranted attacks on both the Forever People and Jericho. For the record, I'd always prefer to see Batman getting blasted over Big Bear, who I do care about. Your discussion of pets and wanting to name them after heroes reminded me to mention that I have named two cats after Teen Titans. Cory is named after Princess Coriander, a.k.a. Starfire. And then, of course, there's Jericho, who's my favorite Titan, even if he isn't my favorite cat. Someday I want a complete set of cats named after the titans but my wife has thus far won that argument now on previous episodes i have mentioned how philemon is crazy and everything he likes is the opposite of what i like and therefore i am pleased to announce that he continues that streak 
by naming his pets after Starfire, who I abhor, other than to look at her, and Jericho, who I can't stand. So, you're batting a thousand, buddy. Keep it up. Anyway, he said, uh, I think others have mentioned it, but I'm sad there wasn't more mention of Giffen and DeMatteis, use of Major Disaster, and the Bwahaha Justice League first uh, as his face turn started there. Again, you're right. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm, in, I'm sad to say I missed it. Ernie Colon's Malik Gigi is an incredible example of how much can be done in so little of space. Definitely my favorite piece in the issue. God, that was such a good piece, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, Shag, you can't convince me I might be able to... Oh, Shag, you just can't convince me I might be able to see the goofiness of fat, tall, and hillbilly marvels, but Hoppy the Marvel Bunny is just an incredible character. The only injustice here is that Hoppy wasn't part of the Legion of Super Pets. Um... Uh, again, I, I did say one disparaging thing about Mar- Hoppy last ep- episode, and I actually regret that. So. Uh, and he says, I hate what DC has done with Mary Marvel. The fact that we can't keep her as the one true, pure, and innocent, decent character in the DC universe is proof that there's something systematically wrong with the comic books themselves. Um, Pre-New 52, I would say that is a very deep and honest statement. Uh, post New Fifty Two, I think uh, it's still out. And what happens to her, right? I have we, no idea. Well, you, I mean, it's in the Justice League book. Yeah, What's I know. Yeah, okay. I don't think we know yet. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, we got an email from Martin Gray, and yep. I'm going to read this as if I imagine him. Martin talks. <laughs> I, I say that 1954 business as regards to Ginger Lex is pure nonsense. He was shown as a slaphead from very early on. I am too lazy to type, so I popped on over to Wiki. Quote, In his earliest appearances, Luthor is shown as a middle-aged man with a full head of red hair. Less than a year later, however, an artistic mistake resulted in Luthor being depicted as completely bald in the newspaper. The original error is attributed to Leo Novak, a studio artist who illustrated for the Superman dailies during this period. One theory is that Novak mistook Luthor for the ultra-humanite, a frequent foe of Superman who, in his Golden Age incarnation, resembled a balding elderly man. Other evidence suggests Luthor's design was confused with that of a stockier, bald henchman in Superman No. 4. Luthor's next appearance occurs in Superman No. 10, in which Novak depicted him as significantly heavier with visible jowls. The character's abrupt hair loss has been made reference to several times over the course of his history. When the concept of the DC multiverse began to take hold, Luthor's red-haired incarnation was rewritten as Alexi Luthor, Lex's counterpart from the Earth-2 parallel universe. In 1960, writer Jerry Siegel altered Luthor's backstory to incorporate his hair loss into his origin. I think Shag is daydreaming. No one ever called Mal Black Guardian. (laughs) And Major Disaster was a member of JL Antarctica before he was with the JLA. Cheerio! You forgot Pip Pip and all that. that. Well, I didn't want to overdo it. Well, I appreciate you reading in that accent because that was a real good primer for me to watch Doctor Who tonight. (laughs) Um, Jeez, wow. Surprised you didn't throw something in there about, you know... Uh, t- taking the, driving the lorry to uh, to the tubes to to take the lift Again, or something I like that. Eat your bangers it. and mash. I didn't want to overdo it. Oh my gosh, that was oh. Marty. I, I apologize for what just happened there. Um, <laughs> Michael Bailey says one thing to add to the conversation. Shag said that some people would look at this Lex and be surprised because he has hair. I think some comic fans that came to know Lex during the post-crisis area, especially around the death of Superman, wouldn't be surprised at all, but that's just me being picky. Um, Yes, Michael, that is you being picky. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, Kyle Benning wrote in, he said, Shag, uh, the story you're referencing regarding Luther of Earth-1 and Earth-2 teaming up, resulting in Earth-3 Luther becoming Earth-3's first hero, uh, the crime syndicate world, occurs in DC Presents 
annual number one, which is an absolutely awesome story and a must-read. I think I have it somewhere. I don't know that I've actually read it. I think I'll dig that up. Now, we really jumped all over people, um, creators of Infinite Crisis, essentially, in the last one we read about uh, Alex Luther and how, you know, all that happened. So anyway, he writes, Infinite Crisis is another, another example of, quote, that's now how, not how I remember it, end quote, storytelling method Jeff Johns uses. My biggest beef with Infinite Crisis stems from that. You have these colorful characters who are the remnants of the DC's past, rich multiverse history, who faded from the comics as heroes, and in pure and pure in 1985, are revived only to be tarnished, and their heroic actions negated by this new evil. It's tragic. I wish they could have created new characters instead of ruining the existing ones. Would that have been tougher? Yeah, you bet. But I thought that was the job of a writer, to tell a good story that makes sense, even if it requires a little more effort by the writer. If it was easy, anyone could do it, right? Wow. Strong words. Strong <laughs> words. But I'm not going to say he's wrong. So, um, Rob threatened to punch Kyle Benning in the last episode. <laughs> and this is Kyle's response. Punch me? Wow, what can I say? We love the Who's Who podcast and never want it to end. A Cosmic Card episode, 17 years off, shouldn't be too intimidating. I mean, you're already halfway there. You said it yourself. You're on the back nine of the Who's Who golf course. Now, for clarification, um, Rob is not going to punch anyone. Uh, also, we did say we're on the back nine. However, we weren't really very clear about that. We're not no, on the we're back not, we're nine. We're not really on the back nine. Yeah, we are not on the back nine of this podcast. No. Uh, we are on the back nine of the first Who's Who series because we are going to cover Update 87, Update 88. We are going to cover the Binder series. Then it starts to get sketchy what happens after that, folks. But that's still about, f- what, nine, ten decades from now anyway. <laughs> By then, podcasts will just be obsolete anyway. We might right, all be doing a radio show or something, so. Exactly, exactly. All right, uh, Michael Bailey jumps in and says, Okay, I know this will come as a shock, but I'm going to defend Earth-1 Lex Luthor and his origin. The knee-jerk reaction to his origin, as it is commonly told, is to treat it as silly Silver Age thing. But in all honesty, the whole Luthor became bald was only part of the story. Sure, that happens, but after that, the town of Smallville pretty much turns on Lex. They mock him in the streets, and when he makes a couple of attempts to help the town and those attempts fail, the mockery kicks up to 11. They treat that boy like crap. And that, in addition to the whole bald thing, is why he turned to crime. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't know that we have time to read all this, but Mike wrote this very long piece about um, Lex's origins, and I mean, Lex's history from there, and the power suit, and his wife and children, how it was very emotionally moving, and it was really powerful stuff. And um, you know what? It sounds like uh, it's, it's, you know, maybe Lex got the short shrift from us. So then he went on to share... A very interesting piece that he pulled from the uh, John Byrne forums, basically about how the new Luther, the post-crisis Luther, got created, the idea behind him. And it sounds like Marv Wolfman just kind of pulled a fast one on everyone <laughs> to get some uh, royalties on character creation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he ripped off the, uh, the kingpin and then wouldn't let John Byrne change any of it so that he could get credit for creating this version of Luther. It's kind of interesting. So, interesting uh, backstabbing going on in the old days. So. Then we heard from Little Russell Burbage from New Carthage, New York. He said, I think Paul Levitz did this to show – oh, he's talking about um, – I asked him to explain Magnetic Kid. As we got a little bit of Magnetic Kid from a previous uh, commenter, but he said, I think Paul Levitz did this to show the differences between the two young men, meaning Cosmic um, Boy and Magnetic Kid, his brother, specifically how Paul embodied the whole hero worship that many later Legionnaires had for the original trio. Of all that la- – 
of all the later Legionnaires, he was the one of the few who was, quote-unquote, young, like most of the original members. He had great moments in Levitz's last 80s Legion of Superheroes story, The Magic Wars. So, And I like how he said later on, uh, Fat Firestorm found a job as a desktop cigarette lighter for the New York City <laughs> CEO. He's doing well. <laughs> um, Sean Corey took me to task saying I was dissing on Hoppy. Uh, sorry about that, man. Count Druncula, he said, I always liked the Manhunter robots. They would have made much better villains in the Green Lantern movie than that amorphous cloud monster. <laughs> Fair enough, brother. The giant argue with monster. That. Oh, gosh. Well, him, they should get that giant uh, parallax turd monster to fight the giant Purple goofy cloud from... Purple cloud from Fantastic Four 2. They can fight each other. <laughs> uh, we got an email from Earth to Chris. Uh, hey, guys. Poor John Johns. He gets the cover spotlight, but he's cowering like a biatch. Sigh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he mentions Machiste. Yes, Remco did make a figure of him, pre-Lost Hand and pre-Funky Head thing. I had one. And he even, uh, kindly enough, gives us a, a link to an eBay auction for it. Uh, he covers Manbat. Manbat, he deserved the cover. He was robbed. Why wasn't I asked to comment on this entry? Just kidding. I think the internet has lost, has had enough of my Langstrom ramblings. Maybe I should start a blog. Uh, Mary Marvel. Man, Bob Oxner was severely underrated and unsung. He drew cute girls and attractive women better than almost anyone. This entry makes you feel dirty for all that countdown nonsense they put our Mary through. I need a shower. <laughs> uh, it ends with great episode as always, guys. Thanks, Chris. A few other comments I wanted to pull out of oh, here. Sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. Uh, he talks about Mal. I kept saying I thought Mal had another identity that I couldn't remember. And he, he got it here. He says Mal's other identity was the Herald which was the only post-crisis costume ID, he thought. Uh, that's the one I couldn't come up with. I thought it was Black Guardian, but anyway. Um, let's see. There's something here about Master Jailer that's worth mentioning. He said, I always wondered if he wasn't a prototype for the later conduit of the post-crisis canon. I had that Superboy comic with his goofy young alter ego, too. Um, that, you know what, I'm glad you mentioned it because I think that was niggling in the back of my brain and I couldn't place it. But yes, Master Jailer and Conduit have, all, Kenny Braverman have a lot of similarities, though. And let's see. I just think this, this, this is for you uh, people that listen to the Hero Points podcast. He says, for the Masters of Disaster, Shag will appreciate this. I saw that Mayfair put out a set of pewter gaming figures of the Outsiders. I was hoping Batman, Batman would be in the set, even though he wasn't on the box. Turns out he wasn't. Duh. But the Masters were in the set, which is really kind of odd if you think about it. Batman was in the JLA set, um, by the way. So I, I didn't realize there was an Outsiders um, pewter set for DC Heroes. That's really cool. I would love that. And then uh, he talks a little bit about Crisis on Captive Earth and Crisis of the Soul. And uh, Paul Levitz and Jerry Ordway were connected to that. And we'll talk about more about that in a minute. Heard from Anthony Durso. Says the cover... He goes, I think Martian Manhunter got the prime spot because this is primarily an M issue. Luther is just carryover from the L issue. Hmm. Could be. Could be. I uh, said, as far as Superboy meeting Lex's teenagers, Superboy seemed to meet everybody before they became before he became Superman. In fact, there was a DC Digest devoted to such a topic featuring Boy of Steel's early team-ups, Lois right. Lane, Aquaman, Green Arrow, okay. ah, the Silver Age. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, Machiste, even though someone did deem him worthy of yeah, a Remco I got that figure. totally wrong. Everybody corrected me. I got that one wrong. <laughs> I could do without the characters like him from Warlord getting all the prime real estate and who's who. <laughs> uh, let's see. I thought this is cute. He said, Mademoiselle Marie. As a kid, I always thought her name was Millie Marie because they usually abbreviated it his, with that abbreviation of M-L-L-E. So in addition to her dalliance with Alfred Pennyworth, it was retconned in Len Wein's DC Le DCU Legacies that 
miniseries that Marie had had a child with Sergeant Rock. Man, she just got mm. around, brother. Okay, Mad Hatter. He sets us straight here. Well, he he gives. I'm sorry, he doesn't so much set us straight as he gives us the the rundown here. Version one. This is the Lewis Carroll version. Appeared in Batman number forty nine and then disappeared. Version two, which is the TV series version, appeared in Detective Two Thirty in nineteen fifty six and several times throughout the Silver Age, inspiring the TV version as well in the nineteen sixties. Version one returned in nineteen eighty, at which point he claimed to have disposed of the imposter. However, Mike W. Barr revived the imposter for a one-time-only slot in 1987. Since that point, it has been the version one incarnation in all media. And he says David Wayne had two shots at trying to score Batman's cow in the 1966 series. Yes. Great episodes. He says, talking about Man Bat, if Neil Adams wasn't available, this shot should have gone to Jim Aparo. He says, I never made the connection with the lizard. Good call, Shag. Interesting, when he was paired up with a Marvel character during the Amalgam Age, they chose Man-Thing. Probably just because of the man prefix in both their names. Uh, Mano, I, I can't believe I didn't get this. This is funny. Mano, what are the odds that in the 30th century on the planet Angtu, a villain who has immense power in the palm of his hand has a name that sounds exactly like the Spanish word for hand? <laughs> that cracked my junk up. And then yeah, we get another, uh, another person thinking Master Jailer and uh, Conduit may be a connection. So we heard from Ange, and he talks about Maldor. I went off on Maldor, rightfully so. He's another one of these characters that is so powerful that only a lame ending can save the day. After thrashing Superman and Power Girl, he defeats himself by looking into the madness of his own soul and imploding. I always thought that Maldor would look into his own soul and be pretty self-satisfied. Then he would kill them and rule the universe. Uh, he mentions Mal. Mal, have to laugh at Rob's use of phrase salad days when discovering Mal's younger, thinner past. Works on all levels. Uh, he goes. He gives us a special secret origin of himself here. He goes. I he goes. I'm opening myself to some ridicule here, especially given my defense of the gang and Hyathis. But my favorite entry of the issue is Manhawks. I know you guys like comic origin stories. When I was young, maybe seven or eight, somewhere along the way, someone got me an issue that had reprints of early Hawkman stories, including the Manhawks one. I could remember thinking they looked visually jarring with that bird body and human masks. I wondered how bizarre they would look to see them without their masks. Images of the end of the original Fly movie, a human head tacked onto an animal body, were in my head. I thought it was going to look... I thought it was going to look horrible and awesome at the same time. I couldn't wait to get to the end to see what it would look like. And then, at the end of the story, they're unmasked to reveal their plain old giant hawks. Mind blown. Like major. I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe the switcheroo that had been pulled. I was expecting something and got the reverse. They're just giant hawks. First, I was pretty pissed, thinking I'd been cheated of a shock moment. But then I thought that I actually got the best shock of all, a truly unexpected surprise. And that's when I realized this was great comic storytelling. And lastly, Shag, I completely understand that the hottest Legionnaire discussion is not based solely on the Who's Who page. I do. It's the, it's the character as a whole. I just think that it was interesting to hear you say that Phantom Girl is the hottest Legionnaire when you rever- review her Who's Who page, which might be one of the roughest representations of her. Man, I'm a little scared to see that. I haven't peaked. I'm still nervous. All right, go ahead, Rob. Uh, and then he ends, thanks again for the great episode. Would have loved to have heard Frank dissect the Mercer Manhunter page. Uh, to which little Russell Burge from Civic City responded, and to read Frank dissecting the Mercer Manhunter page, go up a few comments on this page. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm fine with reading it, what Frank has to say, instead of listening to it. That way I can skip the part where he takes a bumpy ride I don't want to take. <laughs> Can't we all just get along, Russell? Come on. <laughs> We heard from uh, Jack Dower. He was able to slip a note out through from the asylum. Um, he wrote. He gave a very neat little uh, story here. So, Skipper, I have to tell you that Commander Kelly is right about how great David Wayne is in the part. You should check out this episode. Oh, I'm sorry. I should jump ahead. 
I also have a story for you about It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. A few years back now, they were reviving the show at the Alex Theater in Glendale, California. My pal Jim and I had never seen it, but, um, but he had the soundtrack. So I bought front row tickets for his birthday. We drive down there, but stop off at the comic shop that's a few blocks away. Now picture this. You have two nerdy guys in comic book t-shirts and hats with comic bags in hand making their way to the front row of the packed theater. Sitting right next to us is a well-dressed man with his lovely wife. I turn to Jim and say, that's Marv Wolfman. Jim says, no way. So I sheepishly ask the lady, is, is that Marv Wolfman? And she says, yes, and I'm his wife. At that moment, we went to a stammering geek mode. <laughs> now, Marv could have said, hey, I'm here to watch the play with my wife. Leave me alone. And, he would, and we would have understood. But instead, they were incredibly gracious. They told us stories about their first time they saw the, the play in the 60s on Broadway. They were so kind at intermission, they started a conversation with us and even autographed our programs. They weren't paid to be there like a con appearance. That could have blo- they could have blown us off. Instead, they were cl- all class, and neither one of us will ever forget it. That's great. Yeah. That's a great story. Um, you do the question. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Here's my question. Are there any Firestorm or Aquaman characters that you think deserve the four-entry treatment like Sleuthor got? No. Yes. <laughs> I don't think there's any Aquaman character. I would have liked to have seen some of his villains get some – you know, I mean, if they can make room for, like, Miss Liberty and Lord Schilling – uh, I, I would think the terrible uh, the um, those three robot guys I forget their names and then there was like Magneto and the other two guys is their names and then the human flying fish maybe uh, <laughs> you know a little more of Aqu- Volco necessary. I think Volco would have whoa what, what? Well, he's com- he didn't get one no no uh, he he's, com- he's Commissioner Gordon yeah delegate, right exactly um, but no no but there wasn't anybody in Aquaman's history that deserved except Aquaman deserved two pages. I think all the major Silver Age characters deserve two pages, but but four separate versions? No, not really. I think you know, if if Who's Who was done nowadays, Firestorm deserves ten pages. One for each incarnation of the character. Oh boy. One for classic, one for blank slate, one for elemental. You know, one for Ronnie on his own. <laughs> okay, maybe not that many. But <laughs> I would have loved to have seen, you know, separate pages for like this version of Firestorm and this version of Firestorm. But I'm just, you know, never going to happen. Anyway, uh, I love how he signs off. Skipper, how do you, how did you know that Frank was in the room next to mine? Because remember, Jackson in Asylum. You should hear it when he gets on one of his anti-Firestorm rants. It's so loud, it keeps me up at nights. At least until the nice lady in white brings the happy pills. Come on, Frank. She does not wear a stupid puffy shirt. <laughs> Jack really ran with that little comment I made. I'm afraid there might be some truth to it. I uh, heard from Luke Giaconetti. Gave us lots of really interesting information about um, uh, Machiste, or I forgot how to say it already. Machiste. Uh, uh And talked about sword, of sor- sword and sorcery versus sword and sandal. But I'm going to jump to the um, Monsieur Marie. Had a great one-shot back in 2011 in the fifth week Veterans Day event. In the issue titled Star Spangled War Stories Number 1, Marie had an adventure battling the Nazis in the... How do you say that? Vichy French? Vichy. Vichy, okay. Vichy French. Um, Mademoiselle Marie is often forgotten about when talking about classic DC war properties, mostly because she had a lot less appearances, but I've always liked her stories as the French resistance is ripe for story mining. The image of her cliffhanging while firing her machine gun is a reference to the cover of Star Spangled War Stories number 88. She would get replaced on the cover uh, as the cover feature on those books by The War That Time Forgot. I personally assume that this is due to DC not wanting a woman on the cover of a war book. Um, I would argue with you, Luke. I think army men fighting dinosaurs is probably cooler, but I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not being bitchy. I just, dinosaurs and army guys, I have a big love for the war that time forgot. But that's really interesting about Mademoiselle Marie. I didn't know all that. Uh, now, if you don't know, Luke runs the Hawkman blog. 
So he's kind of our Hawkman guy. So him addressing Manhawks is kind of, you know, important. He says, ironically, I just read the Manhawks Lizard Con story in Showcase Presents Hawkman Volume 2. It's one of the final stories from the Fox Anderson run of the character in the 60s. I like the Manhawks, but you know me. I'm more prone. That's all we got out of him. Oh. Uh, he says, I like the forever people, and even I had a hard time working up any sort of interest in Mark Moonrider. Compared to the other four kids, Moonrider barely even rates Infinity Man, who purposely had no personality, as he's a gestalt building being, was even more interesting than Moonrider. And uh, he talks about Masters of Disaster. I said they needed a mudslide character, and he says they actually introduced a mudslide character. So there you go. Then we hear from Siskoid. Yeah, he sent us a whole bunch of points. Uh, he starts up with a new who's who. Hey, that seemed quick. Hashtag not a complaint. Uh, <laughs> uh, if people uh, if people tracked my hair loss that way, I become a supervillain too. Of course, <laughs> I have no problems with baldness, male pattern. Otherwise, if only my teeth were as good as my hair, I wouldn't have to get another fifteen hundred dollar crown next month. Canadian universal healthcare doesn't cover dental, folks. Um, he mentions he goes through all the points, but he. He talks about the Marvel family. The only super team running into danger with their eyes closed. I love the three Marvels, Uncle Marvel and Hoppy. It's hilarious. Uncle Marvel I met in the cartoon series, so I have more affection for him. But the others are fun, too. Where else would they have had an entry? Yes. Okay, we get it. We were wrong. All right. That's okay. I want to go back and grab a couple other points. Uh, Luther 1 says, prison uniform? Now there's a villain who plans for defeat. Uh, (laughs) Luther 3, I had mentioned how Lois was was the wife of... Uh, Luther from Earth-3, but in post-crisis, Lois on Earth-3 is actually Superwoman. And he wrote, Lois' Superwoman was introduced in Morrison's JLA Earth-2 as a tribute to Lois being the very first person to be called Superwoman in the Golden Age issue of Action Comics number 45. And then sporadically in Earth-2, Lois stories. Morrison also pulled this trick in All-Star Superman. Siskoid <laughs> uh, does a series of posts on his blog, Siskoid's blog at Geekery, called Who's This?, it's sort of a companion piece to this podcast where he picks certain characters and, and really fleshes it out and talks about the character and who they are. So I'll just name off a few of them he did here. He did a Madam 44, Who's This? You can find that over on Siskoid's Block of Geekery. He did Mal. He did uh, Mara and Mariah. Uh, he did Manhunter 1. He did Master Jailer. Those are all definitely worth checking out. He said uh, Madam Rouge. I said, may I give positive reinforcement to Shag for not calling her Madam Rogue? For once, someone says something nice about my pronunciation. What I find completely absurd is that Rouge is French for red, and yet she dresses in blue. Um, Madam Xanadu, from horror host to members of two superhero teams, including a Justice League. Bet Kane and Abel are jealous. Uh, let's see. Oh, he also helped me out with the Herald identity on Mal. Crisis on Captive Earth may have been a placeholder name for the project later called Crisis of the Soul, which was stated to follow Crisis on Infinite Earth, and had art by extraordinary Jory Ordway, who had this to say. So this is Jerry's version of this. He says, The Crisis sequel was Crisis of the Soul and featured the corruptors from Legion Continuity, I think. It was meant to be very personal to the heroes, showing them the darkness and, showing them the darkness and having them deal with it and, re- and reject it or not. The corruptors basically quarantined the Earth, and that's all I remember off the top of my head. Paul Levitz and I plotted out the main beats, and that was all set to go until the editor ran into resistance from the other editors who didn't want to have it crossover with them. Then when the editors changed, I bowed out. It became Legends, but with a fairly different from what we originally planned. Hmm. Then comes Diablo Frank. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, one of the things he mentions, a nigh unrecognizable two-handed hairy version of Machiste was part of Remco's Wardog action line. I didn't buy him or Iraq because latent unrecognized racism, I guess. I had all the white guys. 
In my defense, those two were the most boring. No winged helmet, wicked goatee, fangs, or, well, Hercules was named Hercules. Hercules was boring enough that racism might be preferable to admitting the poor taste to have bought a guy dressed in a spirit ribbon with a rubber chopstick for a weapon. Despite his historic love of black characters, I don't think Christopher Priest used Machiste in the JLTF story arc that took place in Skataris and would have legitimized Shag's accidental Manhunter reference. Point J, Madame 44 is hot. Oh, yeah, brother. Point I'm going to go back. I'm going to, I'm oh. going to go back up to one. Uh, has anyone ever asked George Perez why he's so obsessed with perms in the 1980s? Why does Alexander Lander, Luther look more like the son of Malador the Dark Lord? Anyway, I was perfectly fine with the character in Crisis on Infinite Earths, but John's missed the point entirely with Infinite Crisis. Uh, he gives a little love here to Doom Patrol. He says, I've come to appreciate the Doom Patrol thanks to the Giffen Clark series, but no one has convinced me to care about Madame Rouge yet. By the way, the, he's right. The Giffen Clark series was really good. Says, and he talks about Madame Xanadu. Um, he says, when DC chose not to continue the series, Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers created Scorpio Rose to finish the story they had in mind. I didn't know that. I remember that book. I did not know that, though. Uh, he says, I like Major Disaster from his punny name to his kooky costume to his origin sounding like the introductory chapter of a Barry Allen Hal Jordan slash fic. I'm surprised, fa- I'm surprised Rob failed to note that Major Disaster mistakenly killed Thanatos while attempting to assassinate Aquaman in an Underworld Unleashed tie-in. Plus, Shag neglected to mention the Major's face turn after the rest of the Injustice League were massacred in the first issue of Giffen's Suicide Squad volume. Um, you're right, I did fail to mention that. And I will say Giffen's Suicide Squad volume, the 12-issue series, is so good. It's like you take Ostringer's Suicide Squad and take Giffen's Justice League International, put them together with, I don't like peanut butter and chocolate. It just, it, it was really good. Uh, he mentions the Martian Manhunter logo seen here, meaning in the Who's Who page, was not commonly used at this time. Mike Nasser designed the Manhunter from Mars logo seen from 7782, and then I think this one was created for the Superpowers collection. It appeared on the figure card, the cover, the accompanying mini-comic, and then here. A new logo was designed for the 1988 miniseries, and that was commonly employed until 2006. Curiously, this retro logo has turned up a lot more since, through merchandise and its usage in the Showcase Presents volumes. Hmm. You, you skip one of my favorite bits. It says, you mothers are starting to tick me off with the Wonder Woman disrespect. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> well, let's face it, Frank. We're not bashing on Wonder Woman. We're bashing on Bronze Age Wonder Woman, okay? Because, well, if we didn't... We're bashing on Wonder know, Woman's I, villains. We're not even bashing on Wonder Woman. It's is, is, weak-ass villains. Can you actually have less than zero readers? Because I think that's kind of where her book was in that, at that time. Anyway, just saying. Uh, I'm, trying then, to, I'm trying to bring the rage. And then he has a point HH. If you want a reference book, get the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. If you want a pinup book with sparse instantly out of notations, who's who? <laughs> um, Siskoid came back and was talking about some stuff here. And he goes, um, he says... Let's see. He goes, yes, it's a case of being careful what you wish for. DC just announced Stephanie Brown will be returning to DCU. Can I get a loud, uh-oh? <laughs> and let me tell you, I had the same reaction. It's like, I'm one of those people who have been like, well, Stephanie Brown, it's not fair what they did to her. It's not fair. And then when she, you know, they say she's coming back, I'm like, oh, God, what's going to happen to her? Uh, we got a comment from Zeb Abel on Facebook. He just points out, cool cover, though. I think this is the first time John's ever got top billing over Luthor. I think it's probably right. Uh, Mike, Mike Gillis. Mike gave Gillis. It like, was a series of comments. Yeah. My favorite one is, eh, not enough Luthers <laughs> for my day. Also, Uncle Marvel looks like Charles Durning. 
not having Hillbilly Marvel carry a banjo at the time, at the time <laughs> seems like a lost opportunity. <laughs> Heard from my buddy Mike Stewart. Uh, we were talking about Marvel Man and Captain Marvel and Miracle Man. And he said, Miracle Man were the best Captain Marvel stories I ever read. Then Adam Strombelli came back and asked uh, if I heard that Marvel is going to reprint these issues of Miracle Man. And J. David Weider came back and said they're solicited and they plan to finish the story with Gaiman. Wow. I tell you, the Alan Moore Mr. Miracle stories were good stuff. Incredible. Yeah. The, the stuff with Kid, Marvel, uh, Kid Miracle Man, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, they were so good. Now, the Gaiman stuff was also good. But it felt a lot more like just another version of Sandman to me. Um, I know it's probably going to piss a bunch of people off, but it really did. He was, you know, ultra-powerful, godlike character, unknowable. So, uh, while I'm excited that Game is coming back for it, you know, I'm not, you know, chomping at the bit for it. It's, it. It'll be good. I'm sure it will be. But it's not like if Alan Moore came back to write the character, I'd be like, oh, because that was a superhero comic. Uh, John Goodwin came in and said, Firestorm, Fat Firestorm. God. Godwin, I'm sorry. Firestorm, Fat Firestorm, Heroclix Firestorm. Now you just need Hillbilly Firestorm. <laughs> David Dixon also says, great episode, we could use more Luthors. Exactly. Uh, Aaron Bias said, Golden Age Captain Marvel rules all the comics world, period. Matt Griffin over on Google Plus said, I like Major Disaster when he's headed in Justice League. And why aren't you? Oh, and he asked if we were on One Cast or Stitcher. Um, we are on Stitcher. We are on Stitcher. Yeah. We absolutely are. Yep. Uh, we got a Facebook comment from Harlan... Freilicker, in Costco today, I saw a little kid wearing a Batman raincoat over Superman t-shirt. Normally, I just think it was doubly awesome, but thanks to Shag and Rob, all I could think of was composite Superman. Thanks, guys. <laughs> thanks, guys. It took me almost three decades to forget about that after, after I first read Huso. And to the overwhelming majority of the people reading this, you won't really be any happier if I explain it. <laughs> Randy Caldwell, our buddy Mr. Perturbed over on Twitter, said, I have not even listened yet, but in all caps, Madam Xanadu equals hot. That was an ultra-heavy, bold, shouty font. Not just not just talking hot, by the way, but the hot of a thousand burning suns going supernova hotness. Next year, when I see the almighty George Perez, I would need to commission a Madame Xanadu print. <laughs> I'm glad to see that some of the shagginess is starting to wear off on some of the listeners. Thank you. I appreciate that. I feel, Randy, I feel like... What? Randy, don't go down this path. <laughs> Forever will uh, dominate your thoughts. Justin Barlow said, in case no one told you yet, you're right. That's just, uh, that's, you know what? He's talking to me, by the way. That's just a beautiful statement right there. Post-Crisis Superwoman in Grant's Earth 2 is Lois's counterpart, or the or an Amazon who takes the alias of Lois. I uh, heard from Greg uh, Arujo. He's talking about Jericho, Terry Long, Alexander Luther, all original characters created by Marv Wolfman. Coincidence? <laughs> He's talking about that, the crazy hair. Uh, Luke Dobbs said... Um, so, oh, he just he did jump in and say that having uh, not having Frank do the Martian Manhunter post was a missed opportunity. Pouty lip. Heard from Mythmaker ETC. Says Clucklore in action. He sent us a picture of Clucklore, which is the <laughs> Kryptonian martial arts in action. Thank you for that. That made me laugh. Uh, Crotchhorn. Now, Crotchhorn was someone else's entry we read earlier, but he said, just discovered the Who's Who show. I fall in the niche. Maybe not Airwaves number one fan, but definitely both relate to you. And uh, let's see. All right, there's a Google Plus discussion, which I don't think's ever happened in the history of Google Plus. But there's a pretty active discussion going back and forth between Gene Hendricks, Siskoid, Lee Lytle, and uh, Luke Dobb, all about how just like their favorite characters from this issue. And it just, I'm sorry, it just really 
blew me away. I was wasn't, like, wow, uh, look at that. Wasn't Lee Lytle a Superman supporting character? Maybe. <laughs> if I don't know. Uh, if I missed a joke there, I'm sorry. LL. All right. LL. Lois Lane. Uh, Lila Lang. Jeez, It's getting late. All right, um, we got a whole bunch of names to chain check real quick here, folks. So we're, we're going to blow through these. I'll take uh, Facebook. Rob, you take Google Plus. We'll switch Let on and off. Oh, the irony. Uh-huh. Here we go. Facebook support from Robert Gross, Eugene Hendricks, Arthur Canning, DC Comics, the Justice League fan page, Eric Rex Peterson, Keith G. Baker, Christopher J. Warden, Oscar Olede, I still said it wrong, Kevin Culp, Luke Dobb, Tony Sverig, hey, Tony, uh, Speed Force, Zeb Oswald, Joel Riviora, Captain Adam Fanpage, Kyle Benning, Mike Fediak, Stig Eric Erickson, Max Romero, Scott Cosby, Bert Bernard, Sean Brock, Daniel Cynical Adams, and Tim Wallace. From Google Plus, Dale Russell, Keechee Baker, Gene Hendricks, Siskoid, Black Canary Fan, Luke Dobb, Kevin Culp, Lee Lytle, Matt Griffin, Will McLellan, Cody Allen, Robert Finley, Joseph Ortiz, Micah Kimber, The Hammer Strikes, Ben Aliff, Julian Delgado, Nicholas Logan, Deeg J, Irene Setieva. Nicholas Padala, comic book and movie reviews. Did you hear how long that Google Plus list was? Unbelievable. It's becoming a real force. All right. Tumblr. Every month. And you know what? It gets longer every month. You're going to have to accept You're going to have to actually post something over there someday. Anyway, uh, Tumblr. Got support from Luke Dobb. Uh, Osborne Pumpkins Bombs. (laughs) Osborne's Pumpkin Bombs. I just got that. Dr. Skin. Caxtram. Messenger Attack. Dave's Amazing World of Comics, which is J. David Weeder. Tosuji Tunes, A Man Named Luther, Crazy Little Bit, Winged Vest, Stone Gorgon, Barry Reese Pulp, Redtha, oof, I don't know this one, Judelica, JSA Revisited, Teen Titan Now, Arlo Pear, Aw oh Yeah, Brave and the Bold, I Will Battle, Job Zero Zero, Dirty River, and Megotero. Uh, from Twitter, Alexander Adrock, Ange, Anthony Durso, Aquaman Talk, Bill Bailey, Brad Haga, Corey Hodgden, Crotchhorn again, DC <laughs> in the 80s, Devil Frank, Dustin Stauffer, Flotos Band, Jackson Galaxy, Jim at Infinity, Joe Slab, Justin Barlow, uh, Carl Brusades, Ken Hommel, Kyle Benning, Luke Dobb, Luke Cecanini, Oscar Laid, Paul Bodler, Randy Caldwell, Saranga Comics, Siskoid, Tom Panarese, Tony D! Exclamation mark. Wastoid Hoth, welcome to level seven. Max Romero and Caffeinated Joe. And bringing us home, Instagram, Carlos Huezo, Cody from Comic Binding, Killer Frost, Tom from Fudosu, uh, Jason from Dr. Nevermore, Devin Peacock from Mr. Peacock, Kichi Baker, Joe Mello, Bradley Null, Angry Hero Sean, Avid Gamerware, Calum Nar. Hmm, I don't know how to say that. Uh, our buddy DC Dill, Diego Ojeda, Lily L. Ryan, DC History and the fans of DC Comics, David McNeil and Pop Funk. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Mike massive, massive amount of feedback from you folks. A lot of support out there for the Who's Who podcast. I got to tell you, folks, it really, really warms my heart. I'm very appreciative. I realize it's the source material, not me and Rob, that is getting all your excitement going, but that's okay. We're excited about Who's Who as well. We're having a blast with it, and I can't wait for the next issue. Yeah, well, at this rate, we're already up to the next issue at this point. It's so late. Uh, I'm just going to wrap it up. One more. I just want to mention one thing before we go into our little sign-offs. Is that by the time you guys hear this, it will be uh, Monday, well, Sunday or Monday, uh, November 
uh, yeah, November 24th or 25th. On Saturday, November 30th, uh, if any of you guys are out there that are live in the New York or New Jersey, northern New Jersey area, I will be doing the first ever, maybe the only, in-store book signing for Hey Kids Comics Woo-hoo! at uh, Bookends Bookstore in Ridgewood. They do all sorts of famous people and me coming by to sign <laughs> books. Uh, <laughs> I will be joined by Paul Castaglia, who writes for Archie Comics, and my pal Ed Caddo, who is behind the return of Captain Action, both of whom have essays in the book. They'll be signing the book with me. The Again, the signing will be at Bookins Bookstore, Saturday, November 30th at 2 p.m. You can visit the Hey Kids blog at just heykidscomics.blogspot.com or go to bookendsbookstore.com and uh, get more details with the directions and how to get there. So if you're in the area and you want to stop by, please do. I really don't want it to be like that scene in Spinal Tap where we're just sitting around drumming our fingers and there's nobody to talk to. I really want to sell some books and have some people come by. So if you're in the area and you're inclined to, please stop by and visit. It's Small Business Saturday and Bookends is a small business, so come and help uh, them out, buy some books, and come see me. There it is. Tell them that you tell them that you like uh, the Fire and Water podcast and Who's Who in um, in Shag's Cooler and Rob. You know all that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Rob. Tell them where they can find the Tumblr so they can see some of the images from this issue. Uh, it's fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com, and our email address is firewaterpodcast.comcast.net. Perfect. And you can find Rob over at aquamanshrine.net. You can find him on Facebook and Twitter under the same handles. Uh, you can find me firestormfan.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, and Tumblr. Wow. That's it. All right, we're done. Another who's who in the books. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the feedback. You guys are awesome. We really appreciate it, and we will see you shortly. Bye, guys. Bye. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etrick and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Hi, sis. What's up? Our station manager's blood pressure. How come? Nothing's happening except rehearsal for Uncle Dudley's new TV show. That's it. It's a catastrophe. Holy moly. This is a real catastrophe. What is? No time to explain, Mary. But we're needed. Shazam! What's wrong? Your friend Fumo the Fire Giant is heading straight for this town. Now what do we do? If there's one man who can help, it's the man coming in here right now. Rex, hurry up! Gotta talk to you! Cool it, Sagsy. The element man is here.